Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing that's just feeding your greed. Oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it. Hello, simpletons. You're listening to the Minimalist Private Podcast, where we discuss what it means to live a meaningful life with less. My name is Joshua Fields Milburn. And I'm Ryan Nicodemus, and together we are the Minimalists. High energy today. We're here with Alabama. Hi, everybody. It's an exciting day. TK Coleman is it's here. It's a beautiful day. Yeah. <laughs> oh, we're going to be simplifying everything today. Get ready. That's not just the name of this episode. That is the culmination of the last 12 and a half years. We're going to get to that, though, in a moment. The rest of our team is in the studio today. We've got Jordan No More, also known as Less Is More. (laughs) (laughs) We've got Professor Sean, of course. Danny Unknown, a.k.a. Danny Unscathed. Danny Undaunted by Criticism and Hatred. (laughs) That's his nickname. Danny Unaffected by us teasing him about his hat hair. (laughs) Danny Unshaved. (laughs) Danny Unkept. Love you, brother. Danny Danny is unperturbed. That's right. That's right. All right, y'all. We're simplifying everything today. Physical clutter, digital clutter, calendar clutter, financial clutter, relationship clutter. If you're joining us live via the chat, you can drop your questions and comments into the Patreon chat. We'll get to as many of them as we can today. By the way, big thanks to our Patreon subscribers. Your support keeps our podcast 100% advertisement-free because... Say it with me, y'all. Advertisements suck. Oh, I have a rather, rather unique. I know that's a non-comparable adjective, and Sean's going to get mad at me for saying rather unique. But (laughs) in this case, I think it holds. We have a unique sucky ad segment today. Mm. I think it is possibly the grossest type of advertising that I've ever seen. And it's, I think most advertising is often predatory or the terminus of it is predatory. And this is the terminus of it. This Mm. is something like out of a dystopian sci-fi novel, except it's real and it's coming to our lives really soon. What are the betting odds that I'll defend it? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know about this one. I'm sure you'll defend it. Um, but that's just because you love to be defensive. The, the, yes, yes. <laughs> you're so defensive. Why are you so defensive, Ryan? It's a debate exercise. I don't think he'll actually believe it. Right. And that's the Derek Sivers thing. Like, I want to lose every debate because what that helps me do is better understand how fallible my own beliefs and opinions might be. Yeah. Speaking of beliefs and opinions, let's start with our callers. If you have a question or comment for our show, give us a call 406 219 7839 or email a voice recording right from your phone, the beautiful quality from your phone, a voice recording. Email that to podcast at theminimalists.com. Let us know if you are a Patreon subscriber so we can prioritize your message. Our first question today is from Pete. I used more data online and found two interesting programs. The Internet's Dirty Secret and is the cloud damaging the planet? Everything we stream and store is kept in huge water and energy guzzling data super service centers. Some are bigger than the largest stadiums. The carbon emissions are huge. I got home 
and decluttered my data and storage as much as possible. Photos, videos, emails, and so on and so on. Everything essential, I saved a hard copy. And a question popped into my head. How could our lives and the planet be better with less? Are we just moving and dumping our stuff elsewhere? Yeah, I think this is an astute observation. Quite often what happens is we trade one form of clutter for another. So clutter accumulates whenever something gets in the way. That means digital clutter accumulates whenever our technology gets in the way. Mm. One way that it gets in the way is, yes, we are creating huge carbon emissions that we never see, we never think about. There are a lot of things that we don't think about. And because we don't think about them, now there are good reasons sometimes. We can't think about everything. Mm -hmm. If we see 500,000 discrete bits of information over the course of the next hour, I can't possibly think about all of it. I remember a few years ago, there was this Vice documentary where they showed the North Korean labor camps that are in Siberia. Did you ever see this? No. And what they do is they're they're there. It's essentially slave labor, and they're cutting down all these trees in Siberia because there's a lot of trees there. And then those trees make their way to the more developed world, places especially like where Pete is in the UK. A lot of their wood comes from slave labor in Siberia, North Mm. Korean slave labor in Siberia, right? Mm. And yet we don't think about that when we build a house. It's like, well, I need some wood. We just buy the wood from the lumber yard, not even thinking about where it comes from, right? Mm. And I think quite often what happens is we open up this hole and we begin to simplify our lives, just like Pete has done. He's noticed, oh, I've got all this other clutter. I started Mm -hmm. dealing with the physical clutter, but what about this technology clutter that's in my life, all of this digital clutter, and what are the effects of my clutter? The clutter that I've created with my physical things, I've thrown away all these goods, all the carbon emissions that are associated with that. But then also, what about my digital clutter? What about my financial clutter? What about my relationship clutter? Anytime I have behaved like a total jerk in a relationship, I've cluttered up the relationship. Mm. And there are knock-on effects of that. That ripple goes much, much farther than you might realize. Ryan, do you remember back in the day when we were in the corporate world, we had a boss who was just a tyrant. Yeah. He was mean to everyone. And what I noticed after a period of time, the first year or so, other people that worked for him began to mimic him. Oh, yeah. I was one of them. I mean, I looked up to it. It was confidence. And, you know, when you uh, when you scare people in in, in a meeting of 20 people, um, you know, it's it's like you dominate the room. Um, yeah, I, I think uh, I think it's interesting how my I guess maybe that's my 22 year old ego who's just like, oh, I want to go into a room and and people uh, look up to me and and be scared of me. But uh, but he he uh, he didn't last too long at the company. Well, he lasted long <laughs> enough to create a lot of damage. Oh, yeah. Yeah. A bull in a china shop might not last that long in the china shop. Mm-hmm. But as soon as he exits, the thing is destroyed, right? Yeah. And in the wake of that, the difference with human beings or with our technology, and this is why I'm bringing this up for Pete, the difference is when we create clutter, there are knock-on effects that we are not going to anticipate. Mm. One of the questions we ask, and it's not the only question worth asking, is does this add value to my life? Mm. And that's a great place to start because quite often what I find and what Pete has found is 
Many of the things that we tell ourselves a story about value, oh yes, I am getting immense value from my Twitter account. Really? Am Mm -hmm. I? And just because I'm getting some value from a thing doesn't mean that is the best use of my time. And when we start simplifying our lives, when we simplify everything from our physical goods to our relationships, our digital clutter, our calendars, the time consumerism that's going on in our lives, when we begin to simplify our finances, we realize like, oh, wait a minute. The effects of the clutter I've been producing They begin to stop once I've simplified. It's Mm -hmm. not about becoming perfect though, TK, because yes, to be the perfect minimalist, I've got down to my 100 items. I've removed all social media from my life. Uh, I no longer have a TV or any digital screen that clutters my life at all. No, of course not, because each person's life's gonna look different Mm -hmm. and my version of the simple life might look cluttered to you or vice versa. That's exactly right. I love your phrase, add value, because... The way you add value, the way you get to simplicity isn't by demonizing consumption, but it's by divinizing creativity, right? Mm -hmm. It's it's how are you leveraging your acts of consumption and employing those things in the creative process? Like the way you get waste is you consume and then you use that constructively and whatever can't be used constructively, Mm -hmm. that's what's left over as waste. And so waste isn't just the result of consumption. It's the result of not, not taking what we consume and using it in a way that adds value to other people, that expresses generosity. Mm-hmm. And so what I see what I see happening so much is we're, we're being sold this vision of happiness that says, you will get that life of fil- fulfillment by acquiring this or buying this. And what's left out of the story? It's what you do with this. It's the meaning that you give to this. Your objects can't make you happy. It's that human capacity to contextualize these objects by using them in a way that's meaningful. That's what's leading to all this waste. Mm, Man, Pete is like really talking to my heart here. Cause like, I think about the environment a lot. I don't talk about it a lot on the podcast. Cause to be honest, I don't know how to talk about it. Cause it's like, every time I hear people talk about the environment, it is like all of this doom and gloom. And if we don't do this, then, you know, the planet's going to be gone in 30 years or 20, you know, whatever prediction it is. But there is like a legitimate problem with uh, like plastic in the ocean. There's a legitimate problem with um, no matter where you go in the world, you could go like in the middle of nowhere, none of it in Canada and do some topsoil testing. And like there's lead in there because we um, because we have polluted the earth. So mm-hmm. it's like we are poisoning ourselves and even me talking about it is doom and gloom. Mm-hmm. And it's and it's like, I don't want to just be another doom and gloom voice, but I don't know, like, uh, I don't know. TK, what do you think, man? How, how do we talk about the environment without it being, uh, you know, threatening? The, the way you just did it. You just did it perfectly because you didn't prophesy doom and gloom. Uh, to prophesy doom and gloom is to presuppose that you have a certain amount of knowledge about what's going to happen. All you did was honestly articulate the problem. You've expressed how that problem disturbs you. You admit it that you don't know all the answers. You acknowledge these questions are important. We need more conversations like that rather than conversations where people feel like they need to pretend to be an expert on everything Mm -hmm. just because they have a podcast. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting, like we can all do our part. And uh, and I think that's important. I mean, you know, Mariah and I, we do what we can. I'm not going to sit here and say that, like, I'm the perfect environmentalist at home. But, um, you know, we do what we can. You can do your part. But. I th- right now, I think the most important thing for people to do is, uh, besides doing their part, I guess, is supporting new systems that uh, that change the way that we basically distribute goods, make goods, use goods, um, consume goods, whatever Give an example it is. Of that. 
So, uh, I, you know, like, like right now, pretty much um, everything is made in China, right? Like a lot of a lot of things are. So there's a lot of um, carbon emitted because of, and this isn't even a carbon conversation, but there's just a lot of resources used up to get everything over from China to the rest of the world. So uh, changing the system, like one thing would be is like, okay, let's, how can we make American goods again? How can we like, you know, at least prevent that, um, that much traveling needing to be done. That's just one example. I'm not educated on this topic, so I can't sit here and list 15. Maybe I should have just talked about what I did at home because now I'm getting down a conversation. I don't know how to talk about, but, (laughs) but no, um, you know, I, I think that there are other things that we could potentially look at. The question is like how to support it. That's the next question, right? Which I, I don't, necessarily understand how to do, but, um, I don't know, man, how, how would you, how do you talk about the environment without, without the doom and gloom stuff? I think whenever something feels overwhelming, we tend to throw our hands up mm. and that's kind of where Pete is right now. This isn't really a conversation about the environment. Mm-hmm. It is a conversation about pain and suffering. Yeah. And part of that has something to do with the environment. And the story he's telling himself now is, the reason to not use technology is because it overwhelms the environment. But truly what is overwhelmed here is Pete. Mm -hmm. He's overwhelmed by technology in so many other ways outside of the environment. He's glummed onto one thing about the environment. Mm -hmm. And understandably so. It's it's noble to to not want to pollute other people's lives. Mm -hmm. Totally get that, right? But right now, well, I think what he's noticing is his life has been polluted with technology. Yeah. And it doesn't mean getting all technology out of your life and living like the Amish, who, by the way, still use their version of technology, right? Mm-hmm. They have wagons. That's technology, right? Uh, they have tools. That is technology. It just may not be the glowing screens that we have. Yeah. And so even they have some sort of, om- uh, of omissions mm-hmm. in their life. And what we're doing here when we use technology and we have excess emissions, that's from not using our technology deliberately. Mm. And that's ultimately what we're talking about. When we talk about simplifying our entire lives, it starts with the stuff. That's the initial bite at the apple that tends to change everything with respect to minimalism because the stuff is so overwhelming. You could see it so easily. But then there's all this hidden clutter. We did a whole episode about hidden clutter, and part of it's the technology. Part of it's that calendar clutter that you're struggling with. You know, I'm busy, I'm busy, I'm busy. I'm spending so much time doing things that other people think are important, and now it's urgent for me. Well, that's hidden clutter in a different way. Mm -hmm. And all of these types of clutter are overwhelming, and they make us not act at all. They make us continue to go with the flow, Mm. or worse, because what Pete's experience here, you know what? There's nothing I can do. Mm. And as soon as you say there's nothing I can do to fix the big thing, what you're really saying is there's nothing I can do in my own life to fix my own problems as well. Yeah. And it might be more accurate to say there is nothing that I currently know how to do because there's always more that we don't know than what we do know. And if we were able to find out what we don't know, it might change our opinions about what we can do. So the best we can say is, I'm unable to do anything right now because I don't know how to do anything about it. But maybe I can learn something new and I can change things. Pete, I want to acknowledge you for taking the life, the simple road 
the, the, yeah, the simple road to the simple life. Um, yeah, it's interesting when we start to raise the standards of our lives, our, uh, our standards change uh, in the sense of how we see things. Mm-hmm. So this happens when, um, it, it, you know, I remember I was like one of the heaviest points of my life. I started losing weight, started working out. And I started uh, looking in the mirror. And instead of seeing someone who was looking better, I was like, oh, I need to keep going because I'm still not where I want to be. And this happens with our stuff. When you start to live a more clutter-free life, you start to notice clutter more. So uh, yeah, Pete, keep, keep up the great work, man. Pete, I want to invite you. We are, and I'm going to talk about this later in the episode during the Right Here, Right Now segment, but we are launching our first ever decluttering course. That's why we called this episode Simplify Everything because the course itself is called Simplify Everything. We didn't want to just deal with the stuff. Oh, that's the first week. It's a five-week course. We go through all of your stuff. We give you a bunch of deeper understandings about your physical clutter, your digital clutter, your calendar clutter, your financial clutter, and your relationship clutter. There are 45 clutter problem areas that we identify, 135 decluttering solutions. And so a good chunk of that, one week of that, has to do with your digital clutter. And that's why I thought Pete's question was ideal. Yeah for this episode. SimplifyEverything.xyz. We're going to give you a access to that course, Pete. And this is a three-day thing only. Uh, I think it's 72 hours starting today, May 29th, 2023. It's available for three days. Open enrollment right now. Our next question is from Amy in Wichita. Hi, my name is Amy. I'm a patron from Wichita, Kansas. I'm wondering what your opinions are regarding flying first class, especially for very long flights, if paying for it is a stretch. What are your opinions regarding other first class accommodations, such as hotel rooms, fine dining, etc., as well as luxury vacations and experiences? Is upgrading justified if it provides possible health benefits or even just a better quality experience? Is all of this just another form of over-consumerism, even though one is not accumulating tangible goods? Well, consumerism is the ideology that buying things will make you happy or complete. The difference from what you're talking about and, and that is, well, here's the thing. If you're running on the hedonic treadmill, because that's what happens, right? As mm. soon as you start flying first class, what happens? Now you need it. You have to have it every time. Mm. I know there are a few times Ryan and I have been flying somewhere and they upgrade us to first class and it's awesome. And then I've purchased first class after that. And it's like, yeah, I, this is what I'm supposed to do now. Mm. And the last time we we just flew, we, we flew a few times last month mm. and uh, we were in you know, regular comfort plus, which is like a slight upgrade, but it's not really first class. Right. And the question is, is the value you get from that actually worth it? And that's a highly individual question. Mm. Now, she did mention that if paying for it is a stretch, well, if it's a stretch for you, then it means it's also a stressor for you. Mm. It probably means that you can't afford it or it's probably not the best use of that money. Mm. And as soon as you need the first-class accommodations, as soon as you need the luxury version of whatever, now you've you've put yourself in a luxury branded prison of sorts, right? Mm, You might have Louis Vuitton bars in your prison, but it is still a prison cell. Mm. Yeah. I mean, it's all about prioritization. What are those areas of my life where I'm willing to have less so that I can have more of the kind of experiences that really matter the most to me? And so 
you know, when it comes to flying, when it comes to dining, for some people it's, hey, my high is good, is really enjoying that meal. And I'm willing to go without other kinds of luxuries in order to really enjoy that meal. I remember for me when um, I, I, I fly a lot and I typically just aim for um, a window seat or an aisle seat and I don't usually do premium seats. But there was a trip where I worked until late in the evening and I needed to take a late night flight and I would get to where I needed to go at five in the morning. Then I needed to drive two hours and then I would be putting in a full day of work. I paid for a premium seat because I knew that the highest priority for me was not hanging on to that extra money, but it was getting on the plane and being confident that I could sleep the entire time so that the next day I would not be toast, right? But normally I wouldn't do that. So everything involves trade-offs. If you pay for that first class flight, you're giving up something else. And so the real question to ask is not, is it okay for me to buy a first class seat? Is it okay for me to stay in a five-star hotel? The real question is, what are you giving up in order to have that? And is that worth making the sacrifice for. Yeah, it's yeah. the question is, is, yeah, can you afford it? And it's not just money, right? Like we got the acronym STEAM. You got your skills, you got your time, you got your energy, your attention, and then there is the money. But there, there are a lot of costs associated with uh, with a lot of the things that we do. But there's nothing wrong with wanting to have a, um, a fine dining experience. There's nothing wrong with wanting to have a first class experience or go on a nice vacation. The problem is when you would be putting it on a credit card or whatever else you know, negative effect might happen from that. I love like Dave Ramsey's rice and beans approach, mm -hmm. but like Ramit Sethi, that kind of, it really resonated with me when we had him on our podcast because he was talking about living rich where you want to live rich. Like if you want to fly first class and stay in nice hotels, great. But like what can you cut out of your budget in other areas to help afford pay for those things? Yeah. And uh, yeah, just to reiterate, like it's, if you want to fly first class, go for it. Right. But if it becomes clutter for you when you need it, that is when it becomes a problem. Yeah. If, if it's a must for me, I have to have this or nothing else. Or like you just said, if it's creating clutter in other areas of your life, I have to go into debt. Boom. Now I've got financial clutter. Yeah. And I've got status clutter as well. It's yeah. part of my identity. I'm the type of person who flies first class. Right. No, no longer is it a utilitarian thing. It is, oh, I'm that kind of person. Yeah. And to say that I'm the type of person who doesn't fly first class, that's another type of of uh, identity that you're wrapped up in. Yes. Like it's not valiant to not fly, to refuse to fly first class doesn't make you a good person. Right. And, um, go for it. And, and by the way, this is why it's so important to, to be careful with making judgments about other people and whether right. or not they're being good minimalists or they're being frugal yeah. with their money because you never know other people's story. And you can look at some people and be like, oh, this guy's bougie because he refuses to drive around in any other kind of car. And it may be the case that that guy lives more poor than you in other areas of his life. But because of the kind of field that he wants to work in, the kind of networking that he wants to do, this is the one area of his life where he decided he's going to splurge. Like whenever I go to this kind of event, I want to wear the nicest suit possible because everything that I'm going after in life depends on the kind of impressions I make in those spaces. And they spend a lot of money on that suits, but you don't see them eating the beans and rice mm -hmm. in order to buy that first class ticket, wear that suit and things like that. So you got to be careful with making judgments about people because you never know what the real price they paid beyond the ticket cost, beyond what the price tag says in order to experience something. We were uh, <clears throat> having a, a book event and someone came up to us and they were like, man, I got to let you know, uh, Nina's killing y'all with the minimalism. And this is, uh, what was, I forget her last name. Nina Yao. Yeah, Nina Yao. And I think she got down to like 13 things or, I mean, <laughs> it was 15 some, items. Yeah. yeah, 15 items. 
And it's funny because what he was saying is, is like, hey, uh, Nina has the status. She she has she has earned the right to carry that title as minimalist. And, uh, you know, you guys are the minimalist and I know you live minimal lives, but that's that's your benchmark. Yeah, you guys are diet minimalists. Right. Ex- yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, that, and he was being very nice about it. He wasn't being judgmental. He was just, you know, kind of being funny. But, you know, at, for a second, I'm like, you know, kind of offended and I'm looking at myself and I'm like, wait a minute, I don't care about the status that I have amongst the minimalists. Yeah. Uh, you know, like the other minimalists out there, I could care less. Like uh, I'm not, com- I'm not in competition. Right. And that, that is really probably where it gets really, really, uh, you know, negative is where it, you become in competition with others. So you either fly first class because you want to feel better than, or you don't fly first class because again, like that's still a status thing because you want to feel better than. You're a martyr. Yeah. And a, a martyr is also putting yourself on a pedestal. Mm-hmm. And, that's why I loved when we did the Chad Ochocinco video. You know he can fly first class. But he's also not being a martyr. He's like, no, I don't need it. Like, I'm Chad Ochocinco, right? Mm-hmm. I can fly on spirit in the back of the plane. It's not a problem for me if I fly first class. It's not a competition because nothing that I do with respect to flying on a plane is going to be bigger than who I am as a person. And that mm-hmm. is not part of my identity. Flying first class is not part of my identity. For me, being a minimalist isn't even right. part of my identity. It's a useful label when we're talking about simplifying. And this episode so we're talking about simplifying everything. Part of that has to do with your identity clutter, but it also has to do with, yes, the physical clutter, the financial clutter, all of these different types of clutter that we're experiencing. And Amy, the experience that you're talking about right now is if it turns into consumerism, if it becomes an ideology, either way, if you're consuming that first class seat, because you have to, because it makes you better or cooler or more interesting, or I'm just that type of person, or whatever you're doing, especially if you can't afford it, then it's just creating some sort of clutter in your life. Mm. And that's where that's where I want to simplify. The great question of economics is, compare to what? Is it a good idea to buy a broom? Compare to what? Mm. Should I have two pencils? Compare to what? Should I get a second car? Compared to what? Everything looks good in isolation, right? But you want to ask, what else would I be doing with that time, with that attention, with that energy, with that money? And then once you've identified that, ask yourself, which do I love more? And choose what you love the most. We've got this free wallpaper on our website. And I'll, Amy, I'd love to for you to go download it. It's theminimalists.com. Just click on the resources tab there. There are these seven minimalist wallpapers you can download because everything we do is not minimal. We give you maximal value <laughs> for free. And uh, the what I love about this wallpaper is it's five questions to ask yourself before buying anything. And that could be a first class seat. And I love this question compared to what? The, the way the question is, is for, formulated on this free wallpaper that you can have right there on your phone or your desktop, it's, is this the best use of this money? Mm. Right? Because it might be a good use of money for you to buy the first class seat for you. And in some instances, the answer, yes, it is the best use of this money for me. Mm-hmm. But if it's not, that's okay to admit as well. This resource, this finite resource that I have is better used elsewhere. Another question is, who am I buying this for? Mm. Am I buying it for me or am I buying it to impress other people? And that goes for the handbag, the logo, the new iPhone. Who am I saying yes to? Am I doing that to just impress them? 
Or am I creating calendar clutter in my life? Or am I saying yes because it is a hell yes for me? And that's what we're talking about when we're talking about simplifying everything. Our next question is from Stephanie in Los Angeles. I'm Stephanie from Los Angeles. I'm struggling with OCD. Just I just can't stand things getting out of place or getting messy or dirty um, as I work or as I live with a spouse. And I'm kind of more of a clean freak than most of the people around me um, and also more than my husband as well. So Joshua, I know you've said that you have OCD too, um, but do Bex and Ella keep things orderly as as you would like them to? Or if not, then how do you deal with it or how do you let it go? This is interesting because one of the things that comes up in my own house is no, they don't have the same standard as me. That's only a problem when I say what? They should have the same standards as me. Here is the universal way that the universe must exist. Mm. And if you deviate from that even 1%, then you are wrong and I am right. This is another type of putting myself on a pedestal, Mm -hmm. right? And so, yes, I do have OCD and it manifests in weird ways. Part of it is visual clutter is really appalling to me and distracting to me. Noise clutter is distracting to my wife and it doesn't have the same sort of distraction to me, right? And so we all have our own little jungle gyms that we play on uh, mentally, right? And we all have the things that bother us. And it's only a problem when we tell ourselves that it is actually a problem. You ask, how do I let go? Well, I stop clinging to needing everyone else to live exactly like me. I can still have my own standard without dictating what your standard should be. That's an expectation. I am going to be unhappy until they meet my standard. Mm. That is a great recipe for discontent, for misery, for a lack of peace or tranquility or stillness in your life. For me, in my own life, peace is located at the intersection of obsession and acceptance. Mm. So yes, I get real obsessive as a person with OCD, but I can also accept the fact the people around me don't have the same standard that I do. And oh, by the way, you know how weird the world would be if everyone had my same exact preferences and tastes? I think I'd probably like it for about a week, but you'd be missing the passion, the joy, the variety, the spontaneity of life that my own standards may not have. I'm I'm just curious, how do you deal with how do you deal with that practically? Let's say visual clutter is a big thing for you. And, and, and some, sometimes I've seen it at work, right? And I know you have those like spidey senses and alarm bells that go off, like that voice in your head when you see something that's off. Yeah. So you're walking through your home and, and Ella's just got like cords all over the floor, toys all over the floor. And those spidey senses go off and everything in you, you know, wants to be like, girl, get these. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, what do you actually do in that moment? I get your philosophy, but what do you, what does your behavior look like? It's a, it's a great question for two reasons. One is I handle Ella differently from how I would talk to Bex. So right? give me both. I want to hear both of these. Yeah, yeah. So with Ella, hey, you need to pick that up, right? Yeah. And I will ask questions though. Hey, did you leave anything out? Hey, where does that coat go? And ask her and actually ask her to answer in a genuine way. Not It's not just rhetorical. When you get home, what do you do with your shoes, right? Mm. 
Because what we're doing there is we're setting up boundaries. And that makes sense for a 10-year-old girl to have those boundaries right. that she may not set up on her own. Yeah. With Bex, it's different. I'm not going to set up the boundary, hey, you can't do this with your shoes or you need to clean this up. Five words that totally changed my relationship and changed my life. Really simple. Would you be willing to? And let's say you say, Bex, mm -hmm. would you be willing to put those shoes in the closet? And let's say she says, well, actually, Josh, I like him right here in the middle of the floor in front of the TV. Yeah. He just punches her right in the face. I've seen it a thousand times. <laughs> what, what <laughs> just kidding. He's he never done not. that. <laughs> uh, no, no. I wouldn't even joke about that. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, man. I feel like I'm in an airport right now and I got a buddy that's like, hey, man, you got your gun? <laughs> <laughs> like, dude, like, so uncomfortable right now. <laughs> yeah, same. Um, so... Uh, if she said, no, I wouldn't be willing to, generally she's not going to. And here's why. If I say, hey, can you put those up? She might say no, right? Yeah. But I'm not asking, can you put those up? Would you be willing to? It's expressing a preference of mine that doesn't step on a preference of hers. Mm. And what I'm really expressing is this is something that's important to me. But I'm also careful in how I use that. I'm not going around the house all day. Hey, would you be willing to do this? Would you be willing to do that? Anytime I say it, I say it with sincerity. Would you be willing to? Because what I'm doing is I'm expressing something is important to me that you may not notice is important to me. And Bex will do the same thing with me with respect to things that I don't realize are important to her. Because if I don't realize it, how can I know that it's important to her until she shows me? And the way to show it is simple. Would you be willing to? And if I still don't understand, hey, this is important to me. Would you be willing to? Okay. Oh, yeah. Last little bit, last little bit, okay? Because I, I really, I, I'm, I'm learning here myself. You have a moment, would you be willing to? She says no, question, answer, you got to respect it. Mm -hmm. But let's say on the inside, you still got those spidey senses and you're just like, you don't want to feel this way. Mm -hmm. you're, you're not hating on yourself for it. You got all the right philosophical beliefs about it, but your internal experience is one of great discomfort mm -hmm. and irritation. What do you do? Yeah, yeah. So a few things. One is it's hard to enjoy the situation in that moment. So I'm not, not going to pretend to enjoy it. Jump mm -hmm. up. Nope, but I'm happy. I put a smile on my face mm -hmm. and no matter what, there's yeah. all this clutter in my way. I'm happy. I'm not going to pretend that I'm happy about it, right? Yeah. But I am going to look to see if I, whether or not I can accept it. Can I accept this for what it is right now? Yeah. And if the answer is yes, I don't have to pretend to like it, pretend to enjoy it. Acceptance is enough. Now, I will say this also, I have my own space I can retreat to. And that can be as simple as having an office, a spare bedroom, a shed to go to, a backyard, a place to go. We have a, in our house, we have a, our old, our garage is converted into a 250 square foot little uh, guest house. And so I have a place to which I can escape and it's pristine. But before we had that, I would have a little desk to which I could escape and it was pristine. I had my own area that was under my own dominion and wasn't a shared space. But with the shared space, the question is, can I accept this? Not, not forever. Be clear about that. I'm not saying, can I live with this for the rest of my life? I don't need to live with it for the rest of my life. Can I live with it right now? Yeah. Not can I enjoy it? Not can I get pleasure from it? <laughs> but also realizing that I don't need to wait until tomorrow and next day. It's about right now. Can I accept this now? And if I can accept it right now, 
well, I've already let it go. So I, I think about the acronym we came, out, came up with, Tara, right? To, uh, it's tolerate, accept, respect, and then appreciate. And basically, uh, we talk about that when it comes to someone in your life that you're really trying to get along with. And the first step is to tolerate. So when you say accept here, is that the essence of what you're saying with accept? Or is, is it... Um, because I would say that even if you could tolerate it, mm. that might even be a great first step. I agree with you. So I think that tolerance is a great first step. It's a weak virtue on right. its own. Mm-hmm. And I, to answer your question directly, no, I don't want to just tolerate it. Mm-hmm. But that is a great first step. If Bex has shoes all over the living room, I can't ever imagine this actually happening. But let's just picture it for a moment. She has shoes in the living room and she doesn't want to move them for whatever reason. My first instinct is to be like, well, you should do this. Mm. Of course, that's not tolerating it, right? Right. But can I tolerate it? Yeah. Before I get to acceptance, that is that is ideal. Mm. Because eventually, I do want to get to those last two letters there, the last two steps, respect. Giant leap from tolerance to acceptance. Mm-hmm. Another giant leap from acceptance to respect. Mm-hmm. I respect the fact that she actually enjoys having her, her shoes right there. Even if I don't enjoy it, can I respect that this is valuable to her in some way. Yeah. And then beyond that, maybe I can actually appreciate it. Maybe there's a piece of art that I really don't like, but she gets so much value from it. Mm. Man, I don't like it, but I really appreciate the fact that she likes it. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, uh, I think what my favorite part of the whole Simplify Everything course is the relationship piece. Because it is, um, it's not just people at home that we live with. It's our friends, it's our family, it's our neighbors, it's the people we work with. And uh, these things come up all the time. And yes, tolerance is a great first step. Acceptance is a a great second step. Um, I'll tell you that with Mariah and I, if there's something that she has out that I'm like, oh, that needs to be put away or she left that, whatever it is, if I can't tolerate it, then I will just pick it up myself. Mm -hmm. Like I'm not going to hold her hand and mother her into cleaning up after herself. If it's a pattern, then, then I would say, Hey, um, you know, would you be willing to do this? Because I've seen lately that it's been a pattern, which I don't think I've ever done that. But, but yeah, um, that's another solution too, is like, instead of having this conversation of, can you do this because you should like, just do it if, if it needs to be done, you know? And it's also not her responsibility to be your mommy. Right. In these instances, I'm going to clean up after you, or I'm going to clean up after myself to, pacify Ryan. That's also not her responsibility to make sure that you always appreciate everything she does. That's creating another kind of prison. Needing someone's acceptance, Mm. needing their appreciation, needing their respect. That's not what we're prescribing here. We're not saying you need to find people who tolerate you and respect you. No, Mm. I'm not asking for your respect. If you respect me, fine but it's not something I need in order to accept things for the way they are. Mm. Another question here. This one is from Lucas in Oklahoma. My name is Lucas from Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. Um, I just watched the short talk about drugs on YouTube. Uh, Well done. Ryan's experience mirrors part of my own from earlier in life, and your references to Johan Hari and some other folks were really helpful. I'd be curious to know how you think religion or spirituality or just even having something of a path can help or hinder the needed growth to, as you say, get beyond the addiction and get to the purpose. Yeah, addiction is a son of a bitch. Um, I was addicted because I was hiding. Like I I was hiding from myself. I was hiding from my responsibilities. I was hiding from judgment. I was hiding from insecurities. I was constantly hiding. 
Um, so when it comes to like the spirituality piece of it, that doesn't resonate with me so much. For me, it was really about getting, uh, just getting clear on my short-term actions aligning with my, my values, because that is really where the discontent comes from. That is why I was insecure. Uh, that's why I was hiding is because I didn't feel like I was a functional, good human being. And I knew why I didn't feel that way. So instead of doing the work to be a good human being, I was uh, using uh, substances to cover up that feeling of discontent. I think that religion and, and programs like AA um, and whatever else is out there, um, I think they do work in any system that you can buy into will work if you follow it. Um, ones that, have, especially the ones that have been proven to work for years and years and years. I, people ask me all the time, is it needed? Is that what you had to do? And it's like, no, like I had to, I had to go, I went and saw a therapist mm -hmm. and I went and um, talked about what was going on and they helped me dig into why it was going on. And it's, you know, really helpful to discover some new things about yourself. Like, um, I'm trying to think of like with my therapist, uh, she said something about like, Hey, we're, cause I would tell her about all the shit that was going on inside of me. And she's like, were you abused when you were a kid? And I'm like, yeah, like my stepdad beat the crap out of me. She's like, this is a very common uh, reaction in adulthood to um, kids that are physically abused. And it wasn't until she pointed that out to me that like I started to look at that trauma and how it was coming out as these different issues that I was bringing to her. So it helped me see clearer um, why I was the way I was. And that's how my mind works. I need to know why like behind pretty much everything and that, and then I can kind of make a, an educated decision or, you know, um, whatever I can see the picture a little bit more clearly, but the, 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 the systems that are in place that he's bringing up here, I, I think that they work, but I don't think that they get you to the why I think that what they do is they give you a mechanism to say, Hey, if you follow these steps, you're a good person. People are going to like you and you're going to go to heaven. And that feels really, really good. I was there. It feels awesome knowing everything and feeling like God is going to save you when it all comes crashing down. Um, but I don't know if that is, um, I don't know if, that, if that's necessarily the step for everyone. And, and even within the same religion, the same spiritual path, the same self-development program, there are different ways that people employ the practices and the processes, mm -hmm. right? For everything you could possibly do, there's an unhealthy way to do it and there's an unhealthy way to do it. There's a way to miss the point with everything. And there is no philosophy so amazing, no practice so wonderful that someone can give it to you and you can shut your brain off and just apply it without having to worry about misuse. Everything can be abused. Everything can be misunderstood. Mm -hmm. You can miss the point within any context, within any philosophy. I think about a guy who, um, a story of a, a man who went to a guru and he says, I'm looking for enlightenment. And he says, I, I just can't seem to find it. And I'm trying everything I can. And the guru says, well, tell me, what, what do you do? And he says, well, on Mondays, I do yoga. On Tuesdays, I do mantra meditation. On Wednesdays, I use the prayer beads. On uh, Thursdays, I go into a cave and meditate on the darkness. On Fridays, I walk the labyrinth. And the guru says to him, well, you're a spiritual addict. You're just chasing for enlightenment in the next great activity. And that's just taking you in the opposite direction. You're like a man who swims across the ocean, covering a vast array of territory, but you never sit still long enough to sink and go deep into anything. Mm. Find a way to simply be still, 
and let go of all of the various practices, sink deeply into yourself, and there you will find peace. And so even when it comes to spirituality and all of the advertisements for peace, if you're chasing after peace with an attitude of like, just one more spiritual exercise, just one more self-help book, and then I'll get there, you're missing the point, even within a context where peace is advertised as the end goal. You know, at some point, you just Mm got to let go of like one step away from it, you know? Yeah, no, that's a a great, a great example, man. It makes me think how these systems are their own drug in a way. Like you're just kind of substituting. There's a literal term called dry drunk in the AA community. And what it means is that someone has gone through the work, they don't drink anymore, but they still act like a drunk. Hmm. And the reason why they're a dry drunk is because they haven't dealt with whatever's, whatever trauma is going on inside. And we all got some bit of trauma going on inside, like some of us more than others. And a dry drunk has not dealt with the actual problem. They just dealt with the, uh, you know, with the symptom, which was drinking to cover up that trauma. They've just learned how to basically hold space for that trauma enough to where they don't have to drink to cover it up, but it still comes out in a very, very negative way. The question worth asking is, what are you hiding? Mm. Because when you start drinking or you start over-consuming material goods or over-consuming social media or over-consuming food or over-consuming busyness or going deep into debt Mm. or just consuming people, more relationships, more events, more cocktail parties, whatever it might be, the more, 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 what am I hiding? What Mm. am I covering up because at first it feels good to cover up that trauma, right? Mm -hmm. Because I don't want to sort through it. That's difficult. It's painful. I don't want the pain. Let's cover up the pain. But on a long enough timeline, the, the path to misery is cobbled with addition. Yeah. And so the path to peace is uncovered. Yeah. With subtraction. And so what you're really talking about here, any of these spiritual paths that you're that are useful to you they have much more to do with subtraction than they do adding more onto my plate yeah yeah and and if you really look at the essence of a lot of these spiritual practices that are reported uh as having led people to peace the goal of them is to cultivate this state of inward stillness so even something like mantra meditation it's a very busy exercise in the sense that you have a word or a phrase that you're saying over and over again. And if someone is looking at your behavior, they're thinking, oh, you're very busy. But by focusing on that mantra, you're quieting the mind and you're cultivating this disposition of quiet. And so even when you are busy, the goal ought to be to cultivate that inward stillness. So if you're trapped in this busy bodied approach to spirituality that isn't leading to that, it's just another form of addiction, but it's just dressed up in, in more enlightened, enlightened, noble sounding language. Yeah. You know, I think there's one common theme between the, the spiritual paths, me seeking a therapist. Um, it's the support. So regardless, like if you are uh, addicted, like you've got to find some way to get support and the more support you can get, the better. I think the other distinction that TK is, is making here, and I just want to highlight it real quick. Stillness, when you're talking about it, is not something you can do. And yeah. that often drives people crazy. Like, what do I do? No, stillness is the lack of, of the doing, right? Now, there can be an environment in which it's easier to be still. You, know, you put yourself in a float tank and you realize how still you're not. Mm-hmm. How fast the brain is moving, the thoughts are tumbling because you've turned everything else down 
And you realize that even though I'm perfectly still, it's chaos up here. Mm. A lot of thought clutter, mental clutter, psychological clutter that's making me miserable. Even though everything else around me is completely peaceful and still, I lack the peace up here Mm. because I've been covering it up for so long. Let's move on to some social media questions. Looks like we got a question from Maha on Facebook. How can I stop being so attached to things? And why do I get so attached to things? Mm, <laughs> the million dollar answer. Just read all our books, watch our documentaries, listen to all our podcasts. Yeah, here's the order you have to <laughs> right. do it in. Yeah. You know, Maha, to let go, you don't have to do anything except stop the clinging. Now, obviously, the first step in that is not to just drop something. If you have a really tight grip on something for a really long time, if I got my my device here and I'm just clinging to it, clinging to it, I'm not saying throw it across the room. The first thing I need to do is just, this is kind of painful when I cling for a while, right? Mm-hmm. In fact, we're going to get into this later on the private podcast. I've got this video example of the pain that is caused by clinging. So the first step is not to just throw this or drop it. It's to simply loosen my grip for a second. Mm. Oh, I'm still holding it. Now, without that same tension, I can ask, does this add value to my life? Is this getting in the way? Is this serving its purpose or did it already serve its purpose? And if it served its purpose before I'm clinging to it because it's residue from the past, it's never gonna do for me the thing it did before. Mm. The story I'm telling myself is, yes, maybe it added value a year ago, a decade ago, but I'll hold on to it just in case. And now I'm clinging to it again. I feel myself clinging tighter. I, oh, loosen my grip. Okay, how do I let go? I simply cease the clinging. And if it was a snake in your hand, you wouldn't ask, how do I let go of the snake? You don't need a three-step process to stop clinging. As soon as you realize, you understand how dangerous the thing you're clinging to is, how dangerous clinging in general is, because it keeps you tethered to a place you don't want to be, you drop it automatically. Mm. Yeah. You know, I I think it's important to highlight the fact that um, attraction precedes attachment. The reason we're attached to things is because at some point, we were genuinely, sincerely, and legitimately attracted to it. And that attraction turned into an addiction or a codependent relationship. And instead of making the leap to try to figure out how can I break up with this attachment, you've got to ask yourself, well, what's legitimate about the attraction that underlies the attachment? Because you can't figure out how to meet a desire in a healthy way if you don't embrace that fundamental desire as healthy and as good. And so often we attack ourselves by saying, oh, I'm such a filthy person for feeling this way. Mm. I'm such a bad person for having a taste for that, for being drawn to that, attracted to that, wanting that. And we're so busy condemning ourselves that we never learn from the wisdom of our attractions and our affinities. But when you place yourself before those attractions and say, well, what are you teaching me? What needs are you meeting for me? Then you can say, all right, I'm ready to let go of the unhealthy, unsustainable way of doing those things. And I'm ready to do those things in a way that lines up with my highest values. Yeah, and I think that works, TK, because you're finding purpose, you're finding meaning beyond your things. And that's, I mean, that's why we get attached to our things. Like we're, we're all looking for purpose and meaning. And it's very, very easy to look at 
things from the past, uh, things from our, you know, grandfather, great, great grandfather, and uh, makes us feel good. And there's nothing wrong with that. But if that's what the, if the things that we have in our lives are the only thing that bring us meaning, like that's why you're having such a difficult time letting go. Yeah, you have a difficult time letting go because of exactly what Ryan just said. If you're not in the moment, you're in the past or you're in the future. Mm-hmm. And you're telling yourself some doom story about the future because you want to let go of the past. And so when I think about the things that I've clung to, you never cling in the present moment. The example I always love to use is with my daughter when she's on the monkey bars climbing across and she's truly present, what happens? There's a cycle of attachment and letting go. She's not clinging in perpetuity. Mm -hmm. There's a brief moment of attachment, necessary attachment, holding on for just as long as she needs to move forward. But when we cling, what happens? You can't move forward. Mm -hmm. It could be a bunch of excess books. If you cling to those, it's difficult to move forward. If you have a bunch of clothes you don't wear anymore and you're clinging to those, you can't move forward. Maybe you have a career you just don't enjoy anymore. If you don't enjoy it, you can't be in the present moment. What does that mean? You're clinging to the career. You're not able to move forward. What about the relationships that are from your past that are no longer serving you or you're no longer able to serve them? If you're holding on to those out of a pious sense of obligation, you're clinging. You can't move on to more meaningful relationships. We cling in all these other areas of our life. It's not just the material goods It's easy to see the things that we cling to, but mentally we're clinging to everything from our past. The only time we don't cling to the past is when we're living right here, right now in the present moment. Yeah. Just to add to that real quick, you've got to know what you're moving forward towards. Like that's, that is what is going to help you let go a little bit more. That's why she can do the monkey bars. She sees the destination. She Mm -hmm. knows exactly when she needs to cling and let go, cling and let go. But if you blindfold her, be a little bit different probably. (laughs) (laughs) And that clinging for the moment, she's not actually clinging. She's attaching herself to it and she's able to let go because she knows the direction in which she's going. Mm -hmm. She may not know the ultimate destination, the ultimate arrival point, and that's totally fine. But she knows where the next monkey bar is, and that is onward, moving forward. In order to move forward just a little bit, you have to let go. And I bet you, if you blindfolded Ella, she probably could do the monkey bars blindfolded. She's <laughs> she's pretty athletic. <laughs> Another Facebook question here. This one is from Natalie. How do you overcome the fear of allowing yourself to feel good feelings and enjoy good things? I have always tried to protect myself by not allowing too much good in because I know bad could strike while my guard is down. Oh, the can... demonization of good feelings. We're so afraid of how pleasure and joy and peace and happiness might destroy us. You better be careful. You better be careful. I've, I've always stated that a core part of my life philosophy is that in the absence of any logically or morally compelling reasons to do otherwise, you should always do what feels good. That's frightening. Are you actually giving people the permission to do what feels good? Yeah. In the absence of any logically or morally compelling reasons to do otherwise. Okay, Mr. Smarty Pants, if I feel like robbing a bank, well, I think there are some logically and morally compelling reasons to do otherwise there. Mm -hmm. So that would be a good example of when you shouldn't just do something because it feels convenient. But in the absence of that, why would you do anything else other than what feels good to you? That's a compass for you. That's a guidance system for you. 
telling you what makes you come alive and what brings you joy. But here's the other thing. Yes, it is true that sometimes we find ourselves feeling good and then life throws us a curveball and we feel bad. When that happens, that's not the universe punishing you for feeling good. When that happens, that's called life. So the next time you have a moment where something happens and you feel bad because of it, please don't subscribe to this worldview that says the universe is always watching you mm-hmm. and measuring your pleasure intake. And whenever the universe senses that your pleasure gets to a certain point, it says, oh, I got to balance you out. I got to bring you down. You're getting too big for your britches. That's kind of like a twilight zone view of the universe where the universe mm-hmm. is always there to trip you up and trick you so that you can learn a lesson. But it's not like that. The universe isn't going to punish you with challenges just because you feel good. The universe is going to give you challenges no matter how you feel and how you end up feeling as a result of that is going to depend on how you label those challenges, what meaning you assign to those challenges. I'd like to make a a distinction here between feeling good. The the sense that you're talking about it is fulfillment or satisfaction. We often conflate that with pleasure, right? And so pleasure, I can eat candy all day. There's a compelling reason not to do that, right? It's going to be unhealthy. It's going to actually make me suffer more. And it's not fulfilling on on a long timeline. In fact, it's not really fulfilling even in the moment. It's not as fulfilling as the downsides will be. And there's nothing wrong with eating a couple pieces of candy, right? But when your diet primarily consists of non-nutritious foods, that's often what we do on a sort of philosophical or spiritual level as well, right? We're constantly sort of snacking on these these things that are full of empty calories, but no nutrition. I, there's a great thought experiment, and I'm going to talk about this book trilogy during our added value segment today by Jed McKenna. And it's a trilogy about um, spirituality, about enlightenment. And the second book at the end of it, he has this really interesting thought experiment that doesn't have a canned definitive answer. But Ryan, I'll I'll play it with you for a moment because it seems like the easiest question to answer, but it's really difficult, I think, to answer. So if I put a button on the table, there's a big red button, Mm -hmm. and I said, Ryan, if you press this button... I'm hitting it right now. (laughs) (laughs) I can't resist the big red button. Everyone in Switzerland dies. (laughs) Okay. Why don't you press that button? Um, I don't want to cause harm. Why? Um, because I hate when harm is caused to me and I really try to live by the platinum rule, which is treat people how they want to be treated. So, uh, yeah, we going to dig deeper. Why? Yeah. Because I think there is something ingrained in human beings to protect one another because there, it is a survival uh, it's a survival technique that we have learned through thousands of years of being humans. Are we going to keep going? Why? Yeah, but no one knows you hit it, right? And so... Oh, like, so, the, well, okay. So, and no one knows that I hit it. Yeah. So I put the button here. Yeah. And... Because because there's something about being honor in honor with yourself uh-huh. that if you're out of honor with yourself, like that's, whether people know it or not, like, it doesn't matter who knows, like, you know. Yes. Yeah. 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 And so what I love about these thought experiments, like, of course, I don't want to hit that button, but it comes down to like, well, why? And ultimately I can, at first I will say these grandiose things like, 
it's morally wrong or I don't want other people to suffer or whatever. But fundamentally, when I keep digging down, it's about me. Mm. The reason I'm not going to hit it has something to do with me. Maybe it's just I don't feel compelled to hit it. Maybe the question, to follow up the question is, why would I hit it? Hmm, that's another question. And, huh, why? Okay, well, ultimately, though, this gets back to what TK was talking about. I don't have a compelling enough reason to hit it. Is is there a world in which you could give me a compelling enough reason to hit it? Hmm. Yeah, we have to figure out what that might be. Or we'll save the entire continent of Asia if you kill all the people. And it's like, wow, do I still hit the button? And all of a sudden, yes, you have a compelling reason to do so. But ultimately, that's what we're talking about. I'm not compelled to hit that button. There, there isn't a a definitive reason why not to do it mm-hmm. other than it's not compelling to me. Yeah, And I think that gets to the heart of Natalie's question. When she talks about this fear or whatever, yes, we dress up everything in fear, right? Mm-hmm. But are you compelled to do something for other people? Or are you compelled to do it for you? And if the byproduct of that is it makes you feel good, wonderful. But if not, then you're just doing it for someone else. You haven't gotten to the why behind it. Yeah. The, I'm going to take a little left turn here for Natalie. Uh, I have I have an issue with letting good feelings. And I used, to, I used to have a big issue with it. And it was mainly because growing up, anytime I had a good feeling happen, like I'm um, down at my grandma's. This is a true story. Down at my grandma's. I'm like 14 years old. It's Christmas. We're having a good time. Uh, it's like nine o'clock at night. I get a call from uh, my stepdad and he's like, oh, hey, uh, your mom's in jail because she got a DUI. So it's like all those good feelings gone because like the rug was swept out from underneath me. And Mariah is the one who actually pointed this out to me, but I was having a tough time, you know, um, uh, taking in some good feelings. And I was talking to her about it and explaining to her exactly what I'm explaining right now. And she was like, Ryan, um, your mom and dad aren't here to rip the rug out from underneath of you anymore. Mm. Like this is, if anyone rips the rug out from underneath of you, it's you. And there may not even be a rug, really. But mm. now that your parents are out of your life. So Natalie, I don't know if there's like some underlying, again, trauma that like uh, has made you feel this way, but um, certainly might be something you want to look at. Yeah, I'm not allowed to feel good. Yeah. And I it's think- not that I'm not allowed. It's that if I feel good, I am going, she talks about her garden. Mm-hmm. being down. Mm-hmm. So you're when you feel good, you don't, and, and if you're conditioned to have the rug swept out from underneath of you, your guard goes up. My guard went up because if the rug got swept out from underneath of me, well, at least I saw it coming and I didn't let those good feelings. I, I wasn't fooled by those good feelings. I knew something bad was coming. It's always coming. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. 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 It, it, and, and it's it, there, there's an interesting correlation equals causation fallacy going on too. Like mm-hmm. Michelle and I, for about 10 road trips in a row over like the course of a few years, every single time we got in the car to go there and to go back, it rained. And we would crack up and laugh. Whenever we would get ready for a trip, we would be like, no need to check the weather. It's definitely going to rain. And we were right for like 10 (laughs) trips in a row. And it can be tempting when you have experiences like that. Sometimes it just happens to say, Mm -hmm. you know what? I'm going to protect myself. I'm not going to take that road trip. I'm going to deprive myself of the pleasure of hanging out with my wife, visiting my family, going to places that I love, because every time I do it, the universe punishes me with a rainy day. Mm. Correlation does not equal causation. It's going to rain either way. So when you are lucky enough to have a sunny day, enjoy it because your refusal to enjoy it ain't going to stop the rain 
the rain is still coming. Enjoy the sun while you have it. Yeah, amen. There was something I said last week on the podcast about how good and bad emotions exist only in the cluttered mind of the beholder, right? Because quite often, I think that the Buddhist approach to this is the excitement is a type of attachment as well, right? And so when we hear the Four Noble Truths that get translated, we often hear life is suffering. Mm -hmm. Probably a more accurate translation is there is suffering. There is suffering. Suffering exists and it permeates all of life, right? But one of the reasons that suffering exists has something to do with our expectations that we should be happy. We should feel good, right? Mm -hmm. If you feel good, that's wonderful. Good for you. But if you need to feel good all the time, that's an addiction. Yeah. And it's really hard to break that addiction. That's a type of clutter as well. Yeah. But, but but so so is the need to not feel good too, right? Because for her, she's not saying, hey, I'm always chasing these happy feelings and they're eluding me. It's, hey, I don't want to allow myself to be happy because I'm afraid I'm going to get punished for it. And so the need to feel bad, the need to protect yourself against feeling good is 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 similar to needing to feel good all the time. It's mm-hmm. all a form of clutter. Mm-hmm. That's right. Another question here. This one's from Twitter. Jules has a question for us. Getting rid of excess books is so tough because giving them away feels like a betrayal to the author. How can I donate excess books without guilt? You know, every time you get rid of one of Josh and I's books, I feel it. (laughs) Yeah, we actually thank you, though. (laughs) Right, exactly. Yeah, I I feel good. (laughs) Isn't this an interesting story that we tell ourselves, TK, about like, I'm... I'm disrespecting someone. I'm betraying the author if I oh get rid of their book. Here's how you betray me. You take my book, you read it, and then you hide it on a shelf somewhere and never yeah. share it with anyone else ever, right? Yeah. You know how you can honor me with one of my books? If you take Love People Use Things or Everything That Remains and you take it off the shelf once you finish reading it, first off, you can honor me by reading it. Yes. You can also honor me by then passing it on to someone else if you found value in that book. And if you don't have anyone else you know who would find value in the book, guess what? A bookstore, a used bookstore, can find someone. You can outsource that value finding through a used bookstore. You can donate it or to one of those little small library boxes. I've got three or four in my neighborhood that I just donate books to all the time, not to betray the author, but to honor them so someone else can find value in it. I was just watching a true crime documentary where... Uh, they call him True Co- Crime Coleman. <laughs> TK <laughs> Coleman. Because I put the K in crime. <laughs> <laughs> but this detective got really personally involved in this case because it was someone that he knew. And, uh, and he promised that person after they died, I promise to find out who did this for you. Uh, and, and in that way, I will honor you. So here's my little tip. If you have a bunch of books and you want to get rid of them, but you genuinely feel like throwing the books away is disrespecting the author, I'm going to actually say leverage the power of your imagination instead of resisting it and treating it as if it's wrong. Here's a little exercise you can do. You have a book that you want to throw away. Sit down and write a letter to that author and tell them why you purchased that book and what it meant to you. What role did it play in your life? What hopes did it burden you? What questions did it prompt you to ask? And then make a promise to that author that you are going to find a place to give it away so that someone else can be influenced and inspired by them in the same way as you. Maybe 
you have a connection to books that the average person doesn't have. And maybe you have a connection to the energy of the person who wrote it that the average person doesn't have. Go ahead and play with that. Get your imagination involved. Write them that letter and then give that book to another person who might appreciate it or, as Josh said, to the library. And now you honor the author by letting it go instead of betraying them. I love that. I think that's so thoughtful. It really is. Jules, who told you this? Who told you that you had to hold on to books to respect the authors? It's Jules who told Jules this. Mm. So Jules, you can tell yourself a different story. But to TK's point, what she really wants to do is honor these authors who have spent the work. So find ways to honor them. Writing a letter is a great way. There's probably some other ways. But telling yourself a story to cling to something um, that you made up, I, I, I would challenge you to tell yourself a different story. I would say to live with less, we also have to understand the difference between value-adding or essential details and clutter. Because just because something's a detail doesn't mean that it's clutter. I brought an excerpt today. I want to go through this with y'all. This is from our friend Rob Bell. He has a great book. My favorite book of his is a book called How to Be Here. And in there, he talks about the details. Here's what he has to say. The details matter. What you have hanging on the walls, what's on your desk, the stuff you fill your life with, there is a difference between details and clutter. Clutter is the books on your shelf that you're never going to read, the stacked up papers that have been untouched for months, the endless flotsam and jetsam in your car, your closet, your garage, your kitchen, your bedroom, and your office. Clutter is all those clothes that you haven't worn in years, filling all those shelves and drawers. Clutter is all those possessions you've got piled in the garage just in case you might need them someday. Even though it's been seven years since you first made those piles and you haven't looked at them since. Details, however, are those pictures that remind you why you do what you do. Details are those books that are filled with underlining and notes or the books that you actually will read. Details are those few items of clothing that you actually do wear. Details are those objects you use regularly that help you do better whatever it is that you do. Details are the tools of your craft. Details remind you who you are, where you've been, and what your path is. Our lawyer, Nicole, uses one kind of binder. When we met with her, whenever we meet with her, whatever it is we're talking about, and whatever papers we have to sign are always in these particular binders. On the front of the binder is the logo of her law firm a small additional cost that you could easily argue doesn't make a bit of a difference, except that it does. It's a small detail, but I always notice it. There is an elegance to the work that Nicole does, a, digni a dignity that she brings to her work that is inspiring. I see it in the wristband filled with pins that the tailor, tailor wears, in the worn leather tool belt around the waist of the construction worker remodeling a house down the street, in the pencil my friend Dave uses when he designs surfboards. I point out these details because we are tactile creatures. Fabric, leather, 
graphics, paint, paper, these substances and surfaces we surround ourselves with powerfully affect us. Our external environments mirror our internal lives. If your desk is cluttered, don't be surprised if you find it hard to focus. If your closet and garage are piled with stuff you don't use, don't be shocked when you are easily distracted. If things are lying around your living and working space that don't serve a clear purpose, don't be amazed that you aren't very calm and centered. If you often feel like you're in one place, but your thoughts are ping-ponging from one idea to the next, examine the space you're in. Is it clean? Is it organized? Does everything in it need to be there? What would happen if you emptied that room and over the next few months brought in only the things that you need? How much of what is there right now would you bring back? How much of that stuff that surrounds you every single day is actually vital to your path? And how much of it is in the way? We are integrated beings, everything in our lives connecting with everything else. When we feel like life is passing us by, like we're skimming the surface of our own existence, often the best place to start is with our material possessions. Clean out the closets and the bookshelves and garage, sort out what goes and what stays. Be ruthless. If you don't use it, toss it. It's extraordinary how even small changes in your exterior environment can deeply shape your interior life. Clean, intentional, physical space can dramatically affect how calm your mind and heart are. Ryan, what time is it? You know what time it is. It's time for the lightning round where we answer your questions from TikTok. Yes, indeed. You can follow The Minimalist on TikTok. Also, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at The Minimalist. Uh, during the lightning round, we each have 60 seconds to answer your questions with a short, shareable, less than 140 character response. We put the text to these minimal maxims in the show notes over at theminimalists.com slash podcast. So you can copy and share our pithy answers on social media. If you'd like, today's question is from Veggies and Bread. I have clothes that are thin and have holes in them, but I don't want to throw them away. If they can't be donated, how else can we recycle old clothes? Ladies and gentlemen, Ryan Nicodemus has 60 seconds on the clock. What's pithy for him, Nicodemus? There is no honor in clinging to things that no longer add value to your life. And I've seen this so many times where people hold on to things because they see it as honorable. I'm not putting it in the landfill. And when you're doing that, you're just letting it decompose on your shelf. And you can choose to let those things decompose wherever you want. But clinging has no honor. Yeah, and one might even say it's dishonorable in a way because you're disrespecting yourself mm. through all that clinging. Ladies and gentlemen, TK Coleman. <laughs> Your clutter is the solution to someone else's problem. It's the answer to someone else's question. And it's the tool that someone else needs for very important work that they need to do. No matter what it is you possess, when you're ready to let it go, there's something you can do to transform it or to give it to another person and help them fulfill a dream with it. And that's also true 
of these clothes that you no longer want to wear, but that you can't donate. Where there is a will, there is always a way to recycle. Mm. Always. Mm. Yes, yes. So I can walk you through, through some practical things, but first, let me give you something pithy. The most sustainable item is the item that is left on the shelf. The reason we have so many things that end up in a landfill is we go out and consume so many things, we buy so many things, we bring so many things home that quickly become excess. We buy something not understanding the true cost of the thing. Yes, there's the price tag on the thing, but then there's the environmental cost, there's the storage cost, the psychological cost, the cleaning cost, the upgrading cost, and I have to put apps on the thing or change the batteries in the thing or put oil in the thing or whatever it might be. There are all of these additional costs. And so if you want to be sustainable, leave it on the shelf. Unless it's absolutely essential for your life, if it's truly going to add value, great, bring it home. But if you're just bringing it home, bringing it home all the time, guess what happens? You end up with 81 pounds of clothing every year that you throw away if you're the average American. Let me get real practical for a second, though, because I put a link in the show notes to one thing. I have an article here called the 25 best places to recycle old clothes that cannot be donated. I'm not going to walk you through all of those because this is the lightning round right now. But if you head on over to theminimalists.com slash podcast, we'll put a link to that article, the 25 best places to recycle old clothes that cannot be donated. However, here's something I have for you. Clothes can be recycled? Question mark. Here are five underrated ways to use old clothes that cannot be donated. So it's true that if you have a lot of old clothes, many of our old clothes still have tags on them. Donate those. Let someone else get value from them. Or any gently used clothes, yeah, you can donate those to your local Goodwill or local homeless shelters. You can sell them on eBay. I buy a lot of my shirts from eBay mm. now because, and I'll get them, they're either brand new or the worn ones didn't fit me well, I'm gonna sell it. Great, it's essentially new at that point. So if the price is like 50%, 90% less than what it would have been. However, if you've got a bunch of clothes that can't be donated at this point, instead of just throwing them away, here are five things you can do. The first thing is, and I'll put a link to this article in the show notes as well. The first thing you can do is cut or tear your old clothes up and make them into rags for cleaning. I've done that a bunch. Yeah. I mean, oh, yeah. that makes sense, right? I mean, they're essentially rags. We even use that term now, right? It, oh, look at these old rags. Yeah, I'll turn them into rags. That's pretty simple. <laughs> you can dye the fabric and turn it into something usable, like a hair elastic. That's what TK does. Or, <laughs> or a headband. For those listening, it's funny because he does not have hair on his head. <laughs> <laughs> the joke's not funny if you have to explain it, Mallory. <laughs> <laughs> can't see. And for those who did not get the joke, it was the the basis for the humor was that he's actually bald. And... Visit Mallory's website, uh, jokesexplained.com. <laughs> the third thing on the list here is use the textiles as Ooh. pillow stuffing. I already have stuffing on my pillow, so I probably don't need that. Yeah. Wear old stained or damaged clothing for painting projects or other dirty tasks like yard work. Mm -hmm. However, Ryan, be careful with that mm -hmm. because we can justify holding on to anything. Oh, yeah. yeah. I, I did work around the house and um, when I was living in Ohio and I had, you know, 20 work shirts and 20 work pairs of jeans and um, I could only wear so many of those layers at once. 
I go back to the pillow thing though. Mariah actually did this because she bought a pillow that had a bunch of plastic inside of it. Oh. She didn't realize it. It's because it was like, you know, the, I was just like, it wasn't microplastic, but it was some kind of plastic that she had. So she like took all the filling out and restuffed it with old clothes. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so it is practical. Very yes. practical. And finally, practice sewing or patch repair. This is what Ella does at her unschool. They just have a bunch of old donated clothes there and she's messing them all up, sewing things together. She's sewing clothes to her hand sometimes. But the point is that if you are Wanting to pick up that skill, you're going to need some clothes that you're able to ruin before you can get better at it. That's a great idea. We'll put a link to that yeah. in the show notes as well. We'll check out the Patreon live stream in a moment. But first, real quick for right here, right now, here's one thing that's going on in the life of the minimalist three days only starting today, which is the 29th of May. 2023. So three days, 72 hours, we are launching our first ever decluttering course. Come on, yeah. y'all. Dude, we worked so hard on this thing. I'm oh my so God. And when I say we, I mean Jordan. <laughs> <laughs> well, a lot, this has been going on since last year. We started planning it and, and outlining it last year. It's called Simplify Everything. It starts with the stuff. It's five weeks. That first week, we get deep into your physical clutter. But then beyond that, we have a week of digital clutter. We have a week of calendar clutter. Oh, I'm so busy. I don't know what to do. I keep saying yes, yes, yes. Well, we help you with the calendar clutter as well. And then, of course, financial clutter. Do you have any debt in your life? Do you make any irrational or impulse purchases? We help out with financial clutter. And ultimately, we end the course with relationship clutter. 17 video lessons, 45 clutter problem areas, 135 decluttering solutions, a 30-page workbook, student forums, and much, much more of less. It is called Simplify Everything. You can find it at simplifyeverything.xyz. Ryan, earlier you mentioned your favorite part was the the relationship clutter week because it all sort of builds up to that. Mm. What really stood out to you throughout the course? Is there any uh, memories as you were filming it and refilming it and re-refilming it? Yeah. No, uh, uh, yeah, a lot of memories. Um, I learned a lot of lessons along the way, like speaking straight to camera is very different than having a conversation on a podcast. Mm. Um, so I became much better at, uh, learning what I need to do to talk directly to camera. Oh, he's, um, he's being bashful right now. Like Ryan stole the show. <laughs> when, when you go to that first week, you're like, oh my gosh, do I need to redo everything? Because, and it was like, we were one upping each other. Like, you know, when three people get on a song and they have three different verses and like, they're each trying to one up the next person. I wasn't intentionally doing that, but then Ryan comes in and I'm like, oh my gosh. He, his new take is so good. What am I supposed to do with this? Yeah, like once I learned what I had to do and got my footing, like I do feel really good about it. I have never, ever watched anything of mine and have been like, oh, Mariah, you got to see this of me mm. until this course. Look how good this <laughs> is. I was like, right, you, I was like you gotta like, go. baby, I, look how good I look. I was like, I don't even know how I did this, but like, look how awesome this came out. Anyway, no, but Yo, the, I looked at you and I was like, man, will I look like this? If I <laughs> <laughs> The the, uh, the relationships piece of it, the reason why I think that's my f most favorite part is because this is like one of the most difficult things for us to deal with. The toxic relationships, people at work, how do we live up to other people's expectations? Like those are things that um, I think people will find a lot of value in um, because like me, I, I, hey, I want to say yes to everything. I hate telling people no. Um, and I want to overcommit all the time and I want to make everybody happy. 
And it's taken a lot of work to um, not just feed into those impulses that I have. And I know a lot of people out there um, probably have those impulses that they could use a little support on. I really like the first week because what it does, it distills down in one week, three video lessons. Each video lesson has 14 different segments in it. And what it does, it distills down like 13, 14 years of what we have learned collectively Mm -hmm. and puts it in a way that is really useful. These boundaries that we help people set up in their own lives. And the idea is you walk away from each video with nine solutions in each video, but one that you can apply to your life today and then you can build on it from there. However, my favorite weeks were the digital clutter week because a lot of hidden clutter there, right? With social media in particular, or our glowing screens, our televisions. And we give some practical ways in our own life, our own recipes for simplifying the digital clutter. And then I really enjoyed the third week. I think that was probably my favorite week because it was about calendar clutter. I think that's the biggest form of hidden clutter. We have this micro clutter. It's kind of like microplastics. You don't realize that it's in your water and everything else. Whenever I say yes to something, I'm adding a little bit of clutter. And it's not about going around now and saying, no, 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 I'm not going to do this. But it's about understanding that every yes is a form of clutter. And we show some ways to better understand that kind of calendar clutter that's making us miserable, Mm -hmm. but also give some practical ways to eliminate a lot of that clutter. TK, what about you? Uh, My favorite section was the calendar clutter because it really forced me to dig in into just how much busyness is a plight in our society, right? It's a badge of honor and it's an excuse for not being the people we want to be. And for so many of us, we feel like we have these grandiose or uh, satisfying visions of how we could be living our lives if we weren't so busy. And yet we have a hard time letting go of the stories around why we're busy. And so I think we provide a lot of value in that calendar clutter section that resonates with me very strongly and and what I see a lot of people out there struggling with. I just like listening to TK tell his stories and quote people because like every single video I'm feeling like I'm introduced to someone new or a new Mm -hmm. book or something. Well, the website is simplifyeverything.xyz. The .com was not available, but I figured this is appropriate anyway, right? XYZ, we're going to get to the end of your clutter. Simplifyeverything.xyz. It's a five-week course. However, it's available for 72 hours only. May... 29th, May 30th, May 31st. And then if you're listening to this after that, you can head on over there, put your email address in if we decide to offer this again in the future. I don't know. But uh, my hope is this goes really well. We learn a lot of lessons from this. A lot of hard work went into this. So if you'd like to join, you can join simplifyeverything.xyz. I was checking with our Patreon live stream. See what else we got here. Any, what's, what's your best question you got for us, Malabama? Oh, they're all so good. It's hard to pick one. Uh, let's go with Marvette's question. I want to let go of the need to be productive as a justification for being or doing what isn't my true desire, but I still feel expected to fit into societal norms. Why do we participate in so many things that don't truly matter to us? And why do we feel compelled to do so? Well, because it does matter to you on some level, right? Mm. Your The approval of other people matters to you. It doesn't have to matter to you. By the way, you get to choose what matters and what doesn't matter yeah. to you. 
Or if you don't choose it, guess what happens? Exactly where you're at right now. People hand you what is going to be important. Oh, this is important to me, so now I'm gonna make it important to you. I'm gonna make it important to you. Here's how you should behave. You should go to college. You should graduate from a prestigious school. You should make a six-figure salary. You should own a car. And oh, by the way, it should be a nice car. Mm -hmm. And you should wear a suit every day or you should wear these kinds of clothes. You should have logos on your handbag. You should, you should, you should. We're shooting all over ourselves because something does matter to you. And if it, because if it didn't matter to you, then you wouldn't, you wouldn't allow it to happen because there are certain things you wouldn't do even if it got you the approval of others. Mm. Earlier, we were talking on the private podcast about the, having a button on the table. And if you press that button, everyone in Switzerland dies. You're not going to do that. Well, why aren't you going to do it? You're not going to do it because it doesn't matter to you. You don't want everyone in Switzerland to die, right? Mm. But if you press the button on the table and everyone in your family is now happy, right? You're going to do that. Why? Because it matters to you. However, it is not your job to make them happy. It is your job mm. to understand what makes you happy and to exclude everything else. Yeah. When I think about those horror movie sci-fi depictions of moments in which people sell their souls, it's always the same. The devil shows them this grand vision of what life could be like. You see that beautiful person over there? I'll cause them to fall in love with you. You see all of those riches over there? I'll give this to you if you only give me your soul. And we watch these shows and we think, ah, oh, I would never do something like that if the devil showed up on my doorstep. But the devil shows up every day on everyone's doorstep in the form of a world that's constantly promising to love you if you compromise your authenticity for their acceptance. I promise mm. to love you if you stop telling the jokes that you think are funny and you tell the ones that I think are safe. I promise to love you, Josh, if you stop writing what you really believe and you word it in the exact way I'm telling you to word it. Why don't I write my own stuff, by the way, if I'm writing to you about how you should write? I promise to love you if you date this person or if you deny this or if you forget your political beliefs and have the ones that I want you to have, but the world is lying to you. It will not love you if you conform yourself to it. It will cease to respect you and then find another reason to hate you. The reason why you don't want to spend your life justifying yourself to people is because the kind of people who demand that you justify yourself before they can love you, they are lying to you and they will never love you. Their power comes from making you squirm when they say, justify your existence to me. And once you take that away from them, they're not going to appreciate that. They're going to take their power right back and say, well, squirm over this. Dance for me. I don't like that dance. Do a different dance. You're never going to find peace in that. Do what you want to do for you and let the world hate you for reasons that matter to you. Because if you're going to be hated, you better get something out of the deal. Mm. Mm. Yeah, for sure. Dang, that's good. I, uh, real quick, I would go back to that question I asked Jules. Who told you this? Who told you that this was the standard? Who told you that people expected this of you? Um, I would go a little bit deeper and be like, why did you tell yourself that? Mm. Are you modeling someone? Mm -hmm. Are you modeling someone you look up to? Like I did the tyrant that we used to work with. Mm -hmm. um, and if it's because you are modeling someone, do you actually want to model that person? Yeah. Is uh, that the person I actually want to be? Yeah. It's funny. When you model someone, what you often discover is as you get closer to them, you are modeling a 2D version. Even if it's, yeah. you want to be Michael Jordan or you want to be you know, Lawrence Fishburne or something, you get closer to them, you realize, I don't want all of their recipe. 
I want a few little nuggets from them and that's okay. But if I need to be just like someone else, then I'm not myself at all. And that's not an authentic desire. That's a a virus for a societal virus that you've caught. I need to be like them in order to be accepted. Well, who said you need to be accepted in the first place? Mm. We'll check back in with the live stream here in a little bit. But first, Malabama, what else you got for us? Here are some minimalist comments and insights from our listeners. Hi, this is Nancy from Iowa. My 91-year-old mother, who lives in a senior apartment complex, stayed at my home for Christmas. We watched some DVDs that my minimalist millennial children watched years ago. These Disney movies, musicals, and teen comedies were things that she had never seen before. She laughed a lot, and it got me thinking that most seniors in her complex had not seen these lighthearted comedies and musicals either. We boxed up all of the movies my children loved but now stream instead and donated them to the senior complex for their weekly movie nights. These movies are now also seen in the neighboring nursing home. Hi, my name is Chime Pasovec. I just wanted to recommend a book called Simplicity Parenting by Kim John Payne and Lisa M. Ross. And it talks about similar things about how to parent simplistically. Um, and I also wanted to recommend Waldorf Education, W-A-L-D-O-R-F, founded by Rudolf Steiner. This kind of education, um, I'm a Waldorf teacher, and it really um, just aligns with a lot of the principles that you talk about. And I think it's a really great source, a really good choice for education if people want to live aligning with minimalist ideas. Welcome back, y'all. Let's check back in with the Patreon live stream. Alabama, give us another question. Here's a question from Joan. I used to try to figure out why my partner won't handle their clutter and give them ways they could address it. But I found this isn't appreciated, nor are the recommendations followed. How do you come up with solutions for problems that don't want to be solved? How can I save a fish from drowning? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It is too often like we force our solutions onto people who aren't looking for solutions. Yeah. And when we do that, it hardly ever works. Yeah. And and by the way, a solution for you may be the opposite of a solution for them. That's why I bring up the fish example as a parodic exaggeration. Mm-hmm. Obviously, Joan is doing this with love and her heart. Mm-hmm. But all part of it has to do with her. Like the grief she feels around the other person's clutter is her own grief. It's not the grief that he's feeling. Now, you want to map that onto his experience and say, you know what, man, I think you should also be feeling grief. No, I actually feel fine in this space. Like, yeah. oh, so this isn't a you problem. It's a, a me thing, right? Yeah. It's my expectation or just maybe we have radically different standards. And I'll tell you that if Bex wanted to paint our entire house pink on the inside, I would not want that, right? Mm-hmm. And that would be like, oh, this isn't a good fit for us. If you need our house to look like a dollhouse, then us living together is a mismatch. It doesn't mean you're wrong for it, but it also doesn't mean that I'm wrong for not wanting it. And so, Joan, what I'm not telling you is you're actually wrong for wanting to clean up his clutter. No, but you know what? If I put you in the ocean, Joan, you might drown. If I take the fish out of the ocean to save it from drowning, I'm helping him, right? Except I'm actually hurting him. 
Yeah, it reminds me of this episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm where Larry David and his wife, they don't want to go to a friend's party. And so he comes up with this genius plan. He says, let's go the day after he has the party. And when we get there and he says, no, no, the party was yesterday. We'll pretend like we thought it was tonight. And that will explain why we missed the party, but also we'll look like good people who at <laughs> least tried. And then we'll just leave and we'll go out to dinner ourselves. And so they do that. And he's like, oh, no, it was yesterday. He goes, but you know what? You're here now. Come on in. We've got some leftovers. We're going to play some games. And Larry's like, no, no, no. We'll get going. We came on the wrong night. And his buddy's like, nope, you're already here. You planned on being here. You didn't have anything else to do. I'm going to solve your problem. And you're coming in and hanging out. And they spent the whole night together just being absolutely miserable. And that's precisely <laughs> what we do to people when we solve problems that they don't want us solving. You know, uh, sometimes people aren't looking for an answer. Sometimes they're looking for an out, an excuse an escape or to simply be left alone. And you got to have the discernment to know that's what people want. What I would say to this question specifically, the best way you can help is to just be curious because the -hmm. problem seems to be the presupposition that it actually is clutter. And we don't know that until he says that it's getting in the way of something that he wants. And so I would start with being curious. Hey, why do you have this stuff? Like, what are your plans with this? What do you want to do with it? In a way that's genuine and doesn't put him on the defense. And then he might be able to explain to you some positive anticipated use that they have, or he might be able to identify what's getting in the way And you might be able to help him in a way that appeals to his purpose, not to your prescriptions. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like, you know, she's really craving some boundaries to be set up here. And the best way to ask other people to help set boundaries with you is by respecting their boundaries. So if, you know, they're they're in a relationship where she's really going out of the way to respect his boundaries, but he's not, well, that's a little lopsided and she can, you know, feel totally justified to say, hey, you know, um, I've really gone out of my way to um, respect your boundaries and would you be willing to do the same with me? Now, if it's just you telling him what to do, that's a different story. Yeah, that's an unreasonable boundary. If I all of a sudden started putting walls up in my bedroom, my wife's going to be like, what are you doing? Oh, I'm just putting up some new boundaries. (laughs) Hey, you didn't consult me about these boundaries first with our shared space, our shared life. And so boundaries aren't just so I can keep you out. Boundaries are so that we can keep in what we want to keep in. Mm. And then the excess doesn't flow in, but it's only if we have the appropriate boundaries together. We'll check back in with the Patreon live stream here in a little bit. So drop your questions and comments in the chat. But let's move on to our talk aboutables segment for, for now. I've got the first thing here. Oh, this is good. This is good. I can't wait to share this with y'all. I thought it was the perfect metaphor. Here we go. Letting go can be painful, but there is more pain in not letting go. If you understand this, you can let go of anything that doesn't add value. Hey, what's wrong? My hand hurts. Yeah, because you're holding a shard of glass. I know. So why don't you let go? I don't know. I've had it for a long time. Why do you even have a shard of glass? It used to be something else before it broke, but now I don't know what to do and I'm afraid of letting it go. The only way you'll feel better is if you let it go. I don't remember a time in my life when I didn't have it, and the pain of having it might be better than the pain of losing it. If the shard of glass doesn't serve you and only causes you pain, it's not worth holding on to, and the only way you can heal is if you let it go. Okay. How do you feel? Weird and bad. And my hand is still bleeding. Healing takes time. One day, you won't even remember you had a cut on your hand. What should I do with the glass? Leave it. It's not your responsibility anymore. I know. I just feel bad about littering. You're right. I'll put it in the trash. I'll do it. 
<laughs> what a perfect metaphor yeah. for letting go. Many of the things we cling to actually harm us. Not because they themselves are harmful. That inanimate object by itself, that piece of glass, is not harmful until I cling to it. Yeah. And then it cuts me up. And then what do I do? I keep holding on to it. But then I let it go and say, oh, I'm still in pain. Well, yeah, letting go is part of healing, but it's just the beginning of the healing process. Yeah, and that clinging means it's gone from being a possession to being a part of the story about who I am. And so letting it go means I couldn't be me anymore. Mm. But the question to ask yourself is, who else could you be? Mm. I love that, man. It's so it's such an obvious metaphor. And I know that there's someone out there who's like, yeah, but I'm clinging to this thing because mm -hmm. it's still the same. Yes. It's the, we all, I mean, we have the best reasons to hold on to things. And by the way, not all glass is going to cut you. And that's why I think it's an even better metaphor, right? Because yeah. yes, there's some glass. It's really beautiful. You go into a church, you got the stained glass in there, right? But let's say that church is hit by a tornado and you're just holding on to the glass. Well, it served me at one point. Yeah, it did. But it's not serving anymore. In fact, it's doing the exact opposite. Mm. You're going to bleed out from all that clinging. Yeah. I got one more for you. It's one more talk aboutable. Now this, <laughs> this is the most difficult question I've ever been asked. <laughs> you get to invite one person to a party and if they're late, then you win a million bucks. Who are you inviting? <laughs> oh my stars. No, he says it's difficult. <laughs> it's difficult. A lot, of, a lot of people in Josh's life who are late. But I can't wait to hear it. I can't wait to hear the detail. <laughs> so if you had to invite one person to a party and you know that if they're late, you get a million dollars. You so, can so, so it comes down to me and Ryan. No, look, I'll tell you, you can count on me every time because I don't ever show up to a party on time. Ever. Never, ever. Wait, Ooh, what, what was your point. thought? But yeah. what was your thought before you said that? Yeah, uh, my, my initial thought was don't invite Mallory, Danny, or Sean. Because <laughs> I'll end up broke. Yeah. And it's a pretty good bet between Jordan, yeah. TK, and Ryan. <laughs> you know, it's funny, though. I uh, th th That event we went to on Sunday, it was started at one and it was mingling hour. Just like the event that the three of us went to not too long ago, there was like mm -hmm. a mingling hour. Yeah. And I saw it in the notes of the calendar. And I'm like, Oh, I need to send Josh because the previous event didn't read the notes, mm -hmm. showed up right on time and was forced and very uh, a miserable mingling. Josh is, Josh is a miserable mingler. <laughs> He's really good at it, though. He's really, really good at it. Um, so I was like, I was going to send it to him. And I'm like, no, I'm not again, like I'm not going to mother him. Like he reads the notes. We've done, gone this before I show up. <laughs> He, him and Bex have been there for like, they showed up right at one o'clock <laughs> for mingling hour. Yeah, yeah. And there's a problem with that because I'm socially competent. It's kind of like if you force a kid to play soccer for the first 10 years of their life, but they hate soccer, mm -hmm. they're still good at it, right? They have the, the technical skill. But like, I don't want to play soccer. Ah, shut up, you're playing soccer. 
Yeah. I, Ryan and I, when we worked in the corporate world together in sales for a really long time, so I just had to interact with so many people over and over and over, so many networking events and customer interactions and, mm-hmm. and eventually employee interactions and corporate interactions and meetings and pre-meeting meetings and post-meeting meetings. And all of a sudden, I'm interacting with people all day. I'm playing soccer and I've developed that skill, but I don't enjoy the game of soccer, just like mm-hmm. I don't enjoy mingling with other people. I'd rather just be alone. Mm-hmm. And... So yeah, I showed up right there on on time <laughs> and paid the price for it. <laughs> <laughs> At least it was a nice day. <laughs> I didn't get a million dollars. Shoot. That's what about funny. you guys? Is there anyone you would invite? Who's going to be late to a party? Uh, yeah, uh, it would be actually. I don't. Are you? I would. I would bet on Mahalik. Are you always on time for parties, Mahalik? No, yeah, yeah, I don't no, know. we had game night at, Mall- at no, Mallory's. He, he showed up early at game night yeah, at my house. Five yeah. minutes early. You were there before us? Uh, yes. Whatever. Anyway. Yeah, I, I'm just trying to think of my friends who don't, you know, uh, you got to be fashionably late. No, it's more about like, I just always feel awkward when I'm the first person at the party. Oh, yeah, for sure. And you're just, and it's like an empty house. And it's just like you and the people who are hosting. And you're like, so how's it going? I mean, it's people I like and like we can talk and stuff, but it's just. I much prefer that. So I'm much better one-on-one or Mm one-on-none. But if I have to be around a group of people, it's so like overstimulating for me. I don't Mm -hmm. know what to do. And so the reason this question was so awkward for me is because I, when I think about being late, to me, it's about the, the broader consequence. If there are 10 people in a room and someone is six minutes late, you just wasted an hour of time. Yeah. If there's 100 people in the room, now I just wasted 10 hours of, of time, right? Yeah. Because it's not just wasting six minutes there, it's there's 10 people times six minutes and there's an hour that instantly I wasted of everyone's time. This is especially apparent when you're spending a lot of money, like when you're making a film like we have with Netflix. Mm -hmm. And if someone isn't there on time for that, it's literally costing you thousands and thousands of dollars for every half hour that they don't show up. Yeah. And I I think I'm just finally attuned to that. Uh, Part of that is my own weird neuroses. I mean, I, back in school, I had perfect attendance from grade two until graduation. That's an insane thing. They don't even make an award for that, right? Mm. Because even when my father died, I went to his funeral, but like, it was like on a Friday evening, we worked it out. So I didn't, that's how OCD I was, right? I couldn't miss school even for a death. When did it kick in for you that you had to be to school every single day. I mean, I, really, it was when my whole life started spiraling out of control because of the drinking and, and alcohol abuse in the homes. And uh, it was a way I could have control, right? Mm. And so for me, it's a control thing. Mm. I need to have control of my own life. And I everything was so out of control. You know, it's like if you're in a foxhole in a war, Everything seems so chaotic. You find something to bring some sort of calm in that moment. Otherwise, it drives you insane. Yeah. It kills you. It's almost like uh, even, you know, there's the control thing, but also going to school, there's certainly more structure at school than there was at home too. Yeah. Yeah. Although I've never found that structure that appealing to me, but when you have none at all, there's no boundaries at all. Yeah. You glom on to something there. Yeah. Yeah. I like what you said about the incentives with with uh, when you're paying people, how you become more sensitive to it. 
And, and this is one of the paradoxes of uh, giving people ownership in an organization. Uh, the paradox is that what you give up in power, you usually get back in productivity. Every manager is always trying to figure out how to make the people on their team work as if they own the place without giving them any ownership. And that's just very difficult to do. People need to feel some kind of sense of ownership, whether it's represented tangibly or intangibly. And when they do, they're close to the incentives enough to say, hey, it matters how many people come into the store today. It matters how many people come into the restaurant today. It matters how we look when we present the meals and so on. But when you're just kind of like showing up, making your hourly wage, the person who's a barista at Starbucks, for instance, probably isn't too worried if only five people come in the store today. In fact, that's probably a good day for them because Mm -hmm. you're not as busy, but you still get paid the same. Why? Because you have the mindset of, I showed up, I put in my work, I gave my hours, pay me. But if you're the manager or if you're the owner, you're panicking if only five people came in Starbucks. You're trying to analyze the hell out of that, figure it out, how you can get more people in because you know you're on the hook for paying the people that are working there no matter what. Mm. And you know that having five people in Starbucks gives you very different numbers than having a day where you got 500 people in there. And so the more you can give people the ability to feel that, the more they work as if they run the operation. That was so apparent to me when I worked the restaurant job from age 13 until... 18 or 19 or 17, I guess, 13 to 17. And I started there as a dishwasher. And the best days were when very few customers came in. But then I graduated to becoming a busboy and a waiter. And then the best days were when more people came in because my incentives were now aligned with the restaurant's incentives. The more people who showed up, they made more money, but I made money through the tip system, right? Mm -hmm. And so it was a commission job. The more people that I added value to and created a better experience, on average, the more money I would make. And if no one came in that day, it'd be great to be washing dishes that day because there aren't that many dishes to wash. Wash Because it was $5.50 an hour, whether or not I washed a single dish or I washed 500 dishes. And by the way, at $5.50 an hour, I thought I was really getting over on them because minimum wage at the time was $4.25. And I'm like, can you, uh, Jerome and I got a job there at the same time. Can you believe they're going to pay us $5.50? Dude, I was jealous. I remember that. (laughs) (laughs) I was over at IGA making minimum wage. We'll check back in with the Patreon live stream in a moment. But first, one more talk aboutable. Our good friend, Podcast Sean, is graduating from The Minimalist. We've been working with Podcast Sean. Last year, he was actually a guest on the podcast his last day in Mm -hmm. California. You can go back in the archives. We'll put a link to it in the show notes. We had a great conversation with him on the podcast. Uh, He moved back to Montana. And I know he has his eyes set on heading east, maybe to the Carolinas. They're still working all the details out on that. We've worked with Podcast Sean at The Minimalist for nine years. But before that, we worked with him since the early oddies in the corporate world. Yeah, And I got to say, his level, his attention to detail is pristine. His sense of duty is second to none. Yeah. The way he is able to edit a podcast together, put all the attention to detail on the show notes, amazing. Some really big shoes to fill for Professor Sean here. Uh, Professor Sean took over the audio engineering duties last year when podcast Sean moved away. And so, um, we want to wish him a farewell. He's always welcome back, though. We left the, the, the door wide open for him. If he decides, oh, you know what? California is the right spot for me. I'm going to head back. Then we've left the door wide open. We love Sean. We appreciate him. And 
my favorite story about him is we, um, Ryan and I got to the point where we had the workload with the minimalists. It was just too much and for the two of us to handle alone. And we're like, man, how are we going to find someone to help us out with this? And we kept saying, we just need someone kind of like Sean Harding. And Sean Harding did all this when he managed all the inventory for all our retail stores, the attention to detail, amazing, pristine, his yeah. work ethic, unbelievable. Stalwart. Yeah. Yes. Mm. And man, yeah, it'd be great if we could just find someone, you know, let's list his qualities out. <laughs> yeah, we need someone like Sean Harding. And we, we would find someone like, yeah, they're just not like Sean Harding. And Ryan comes to me one day, he goes, you know who's like Sean Harding? I'm like, who? Sean Harding. <laughs> <laughs> so we brought him out to Montana at the time. Uh, he was uh, still working at the telecom company that we worked at, but we knew that he wasn't satisfied and, and the work that he was doing there anymore. And so we found a way to help him move on from that, graduate from the telecom. Mm -hmm. And we've worked together for about the last decade now. And he has fulfilled a bunch of different roles for us. He's really been yeah. our factotum with The Minimalist. He's been a road manager, tour manager, booker, scheduler, director of operations, podcast engineer, podcast editing, and so much more book editor as well. Yep. He edited our last book, Love People Use Things. Just a super talented individual. Make sure you follow him on Instagram. He's at Podcast Sean. We'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. But we love um, you, Sean. The door is wide open if you decide to come back to California. We love appreciate you, brother. you. Yeah. Much right, love. Let's check in with the uh, Patreon live stream, Alabama. What else you got for us? We have a question here from Violet. What is one book each of you would recommend that has had a true impact and improved your life in general? One book, gentlemen. What one do you got? Book. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll go last. <laughs> TK? <laughs> it's, it's hard to pick one book. Okay, I'll tell you the one that came to mind. Power Now. Eckhart Tolle, only because of that beginning story where he talks about how he wanted to kill himself and he wanted to kill himself because there was like this person judging him of the person that he was. And then there was a person he wanted to be. And it really helped me see how, um, well, it helped me absolve the whole identity thing. Mm -hmm. Like, it's not so simple as like, I am me. Like there is an observer and it helped me to look at my thoughts a little bit differently. It's a great choice. Yeah. TK? Yeah. Can I give two? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and I'm just going with impact. Um, Path of Least Resistance, Robert Fritz. Um, and then the second one is How to Be Free in an Unfree World, Harry Brown. And why? Uh, both of those books have significantly interwoven themselves into my very philosophy of life. Um, I, I still employ a lot of the conceptual tools both of those books provided me with. And, and they didn't just give me like individual insights and bits and pieces of information, but they both radically altered my overall conceptual schema for how I process things. So, um, yeah, I, I think both of those books really challenged me to think in a, in an empowering way. And, and neither one of them are books of like analytic philosophy or anything like that. They probably fall in the category of, uh, the most despised category there is self-help. Mm. They probably fall in that category, but I think they're really awesome books. I'm going to save my answer for the added value segment today because there's a book trilogy. So I don't know if it's one book, I would read them together. And so we'll talk about that in a moment. However, on theminimalists.com, we'll put a link to this in the show notes as well. You can find 
a here are some of the minimalist recommended books that we've recommended on the podcast over the years. So uh, that's a great place to start. One of those books is How to Be Here by Rob Bell, which mm-hmm. I read an excerpt from earlier. And I buy that book by the case. Another book uh, that I buy by the case, we actually, they send them to us now for free, but I used to purchase them, was Earthing by Clint yeah. Ober. I hand that book out all the time. And another one that I hand out all the time for people who are in debt is The Total Money Makeover by Dave Ramsey. Yeah. But there's a whole list and those books are included on that list over at theminimalists.com. We'll get back to the Patreon live stream, but I've got a sucky ad for y'all. For the sucky ad segment today, Jordan, put this up on the screen because it is not what it looks like. Gentlemen, you can see this. It says, the biggest thing to happen to TV since color and it's just an ad, and you're like, "Oh, cool! What what is going to be the biggest thing to happen to TV? Is it mm-hmm. going to be like 3D? Like, what do you when you see this ad? What what do you see? What do you think of Ryan? I, I, I'm just confused. I have no idea. I'm like, what could be better? Are we doing 3D? Yeah. Are we doing like smell of vision? Smell vision. Yeah. Cool. Like, what are, what what, what are we doing? Are, is this is this like a a new uh, curvature that they have found to put on a TV? Right. I'm to, what is that little white? What is a little white uh, text say? Oh, coming is, 2023. Oh, okay. Yeah, so this is this is right now. Mm-hmm. And this is from Telly. And this is the article itself. We'll put a link to the article in the show notes at theminimalists.com slash podcast. The, oh my gosh, this is from The Verge. And the title of this is Forget Ad-Supported Streaming, which I love that. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'd love to forget ad-supported streaming. Yeah. Here comes the ad-supported TV. And you lost let us. me let me read this first paragraph to you, and then we can talk about it. The co-founder of Pluto TV wants to give away free ad-supported TVs. Yes, you read that right. That's according to a report from Jenko Rogers in his Low Pass newsletter, who says the free television set will come with a second built-in screen dedicated solely to ads and a soundbar. So, here's the thing. You can get a free TV as long as the entire time you have it on, there is an advertisement separate from the programming you're watching that is beaming to you all day. Mm. Thoughts on this? Oh, it is gross. It makes me think of uh, the Sony patent that they bought where that basically um, if you yell out the company's name three times like it'll skip the commercial yeah if you're like mcdonald's 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 yeah like it'll it'll give you a keyword like yeah. hey do you want to skip this ad say this out loud however many times and like it's i mean that is i don't know what's more uh you know what's what's worse like this or the sony thing they're both pretty dystopian like you said yeah. in the beginning of the podcast well i guess we can combine the two now and oh you're just God. yelling at your tv all day as it pumps more ads into your home and there'll still be commercials, though, right? It's not changing what the TV programs do, That's right. right. This so is sometimes in addition. you have commercials on top of commercials. That's right. You Just commercials const- while you watch your commercials. Yes. <laughs> oh, because it's a free TV. I don't understand the soundbar thing. So so clearly you're it's streaming mm-hmm. commercials, but then it also connects to a soundbar so you can hear the commercials. I don't understand how that would I, well, the sentence is, is poorly constructed. Oh, okay. I think they're giving you a TV and a soundbar. Oh, gotcha. So you can clearly hear those ads. I see. Okay. <laughs> yeah, crystal clear advertisements. And this is predatory in another sense as well, right? Mm-hmm. Because anyone who can afford to then buy a, 
a really nice TV opts out of this feature. And so what do you do? You offer this to people who are financially disadvantaged, Mm -hmm. and now we're going to make them feel even more inadequate. What's the number one driver in our society of feeling inadequate? Well, number one is probably social media now, but number two is the advertisements that we see, which are actually propagated by social media and propagated by our TV set. And what we're doing is we're just doubling up or tripling up on those things that make us feel inadequate. Wow. Wow. It it, it makes makes me think about the concept of negative externalities, which are the unintended and unwanted consequences of some thing that was driven by positive intentions. And so I imagine the logic for this is like, hey, look, there are a lot of people who can't afford TVs and and we want to make it as accessible as possible. So we want to get TVs in everyone's home. Pretty hard to sound evil when you when you talk like that, right? Mm-hmm. Pretty hard not to sound like a really good person who cares about the people that can't afford TVs. But then what's happening is the very people that we purport to help, the ones who can't afford to have TVs, they're going to get bombarded with the most messages about how inadequate they are without more products that we have already said they can't afford, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so it's just interesting how that sort of thing gets left out of these discussions a lot because, oh, no, 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 that that that's not very useful when I'm giving my speech about how I'm making TVs more accessible to broader audiences. Let's leave that part out, you know? Yeah, because it, it, it doesn't correspond with the message I'm trying to communicate. And this is this itself is an ad, right? Mm-hmm. The, the best thing since the whatever, the color of TV, that itself is an ad. It's designed to get my attention so that I can buy into the vision that they're telling me, right? But what Give kind me of smell of vision. What kind of nonsense is that, right? How is this the biggest thing to, maybe it's it's technically true, it is the biggest thing to happen to TV since color. We're giving out free TVs and increasing the advertisements. We're actually doing the one thing that everyone universally dislikes about their television are the ads that interrupt the programming. What we're going to do is we're going to build in the interruptions. We're building in distractions. We're building in misery to your experience. Yeah, and that's interesting because color didn't bring misery. It brought joy to the experience. Right. So I just... I just deny the the, <laughs> the the slogan that they have there. Yeah, well, it's the we, biggest thing. It's not the best, not the best thing. thing. Yeah, we, they we've, know it. Yeah, we've brought, uh, we've brought, it should have been like, we brought to you uh, the worst thing since uh, YouTube ads. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh hey, by the way, it will be interesting to see if it works though, because I have seen web browsers and other things that are just overladen with ads fail because the user experience is just so terrible. And even people who are like, oh, it's nice to have something that's affordable. They say, yeah, but this isn't worth it. This is just a terrible experience. I'd rather go without. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Because of the chaos, right? Yeah. I'm just thinking about how people are going to find a way to cover up that little square that's constantly advertising. Right. Or they're going to like figure out how to jailbreak the TV to like get rid of it. You should sell the ad patch where it's a little piece of cloth. (laughs) You you, you get the person who has the jeans that have holes in them and they send us the jeans. We cut up little patches that cover up the ad. <laughs> New way to recycle your you old know, clothes. Send them to us. <laughs> There's a business model there, like selling things that fight ad, like ad blockers and things. But then how are we going to get customers? Because we can't advertise. Oh. Get this. <laughs> Guys, you 
put the ad on the free TV so that people who own the TV see the ad. Genius. Brilliant. Genius. That's great. <laughs> oh, it's chaos all the way down. Speaking of chaos, let's add some calm to our lives. This is the yes. weekly minimalist home tour. This is number 38 in our series. We're calling this one Swedish Sunset. Camilla has a quick note for us. Yes, Camilla is sending a picture of one of her favorite spaces in her apartment in the university town of Lund, Sweden. The dining room is big enough for inviting friends over for dinner, playing board games, and laying out puzzles. All of our favorite things to do, things that we have so much more time for after getting all the clutter, all of the stuff out of the way. I love what she's done here. It's beautiful. I love how this space works so well for her because as soon as I see that, you can leave it there, Danny. It's fine. As soon as I see her space, here's what my mind does. Let me heap my standards onto her. I could never have that rug in my space. Well, part of that's because I have a 10-year-old daughter who she her her favorite pastime is dropping food on the floor <laughs> at the dinner table, right? <laughs> and so that's my it, favorite pastime too. <laughs> it would quickly look like a Jackson Pollock painting, but mm-hmm. with food. And then also I then I look at the room and I'm like, well, personally, I wouldn't have that big clock on the wall, right? Mm. But that's my own personal neuroses, right? And I really like the table, but I would probably set at it mostly alone. I like writing at my table. What I especially love here, though, is you look out the window and it looks so peaceful and mm. it looks so calm. And what we're doing here with a simple space like that is we're simply accentuating the calm. We often do the opposite with our living spaces. We bring more in, we inadvertently clutter it, and it covers up the calm that's inside us. But by simplifying, all she did was remove that which is extraneous for her. She didn't remove what's extraneous for me because you saw a few weeks ago, we did a tour of my living space and it's more stark than this. Mm -hmm. However, that wouldn't be enough for her experience. And so she found her enough point. And that's, uh, I think that's the important thing. Yeah. Mm Yeah. Yeah. And she didn't try to follow any kind of like abstract, generalized sense of extraneous either, right? Let's look extraneous up in the dictionary or in the book of minimalism and obey that. Mm, Yeah. We'll check back in with the Patreon live stream here, Malabem. You got one more question for us? Yeah, sure do. This one comes from Chloe. I walked into a fair trade store recently and saw a beautiful handwoven basket to hold kitchen utensils. I didn't allow myself to purchase it because I already had one at home. However... I'm still thinking about how much more beautiful this one would look on my countertop. How do you deal with the urge to purchase new items based on aesthetics alone? Let me ask you this. Why not purchase it? You've gone through the exercise of waiting a while and it sounds to me like it would add value to your life. Are you depriving yourself? And if the honest answer to that is yes, I am depriving myself of some sort of aesthetic beauty because it sounds like it has some sort of function for you, which you already meet but it doesn't have the form that you want. And it's okay to want something that looks beautiful in your home. Mm. Yes, you didn't want to buy it on impulse and bravo to you for that. But you also don't have to go without if you feel like, wow, yeah, that would bring some beauty into my home that I would personally get value from. I'm not here to tell you not to consume that thing. Mm. Yeah, I like that approach because I think sometimes in, in, in minimalism, there's a tendency to put the burden of proof on the purchase rather than on the deprivation. And so if we see something that we want, we say, well, I got to have a super duper, really great airtight argument for why I can get it. 
But what about the opposite? What about saying, hey, I really want this thing. I'm thinking about it all the time. I didn't buy it on impulse. I gave myself a few days and I still want it. Why would I deprive myself? Now, if your answer is because I'm saving up for this car I really need or because, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be healthier in this area of my life and that'll get in the way. All right. You got a compelling reason for why you should deprive yourself. But in the absence of a logically or morally compelling reason to do otherwise, why would you deprive yourself of something that brings you joy? Yeah. I just think about those questions that you uh, of our wallpaper that you brought up earlier. Just is this the best use of this resource mm -hmm. is, uh, you know, can I afford it? Mm -hmm. Like, ask yourself those questions. If you can answer yes to those questions, like, it's it's, it's okay. Yeah, and who yeah. are you buying this for is one of those questions. Mm -hmm. It sounds to me, from the question, you're buying it for yourself. Yeah. You're not buying to impress your guests who come over. My house looks really nice, but almost no one ever comes over to my house, right? Mm -hmm. As much as I invite TK to come over, he never, never comes, <laughs> he never over. comes over. <laughs> Josh is just stuck there with <laughs> holding two pillows, waiting on someone to have a pillow fight with. <laughs> he always shows up the day after the party, strangely. <laughs> oh, I thought it was tonight. Hey, by the way, Josh, I, I think too, this emphasis on aesthetic value, is it okay if it's purely aesthetic? In a sense, you could say even the things that we consider to be practical value, it's all reducible to aesthetic value. Well, I can get this because it's practical. Practical. Why do you care about it being practical? Well, because that supports this part of my story. Well, why do you care about that? Well, that's because of this. When you get to the bottom of it, it's the aesthetics of how you want to see yourself and how you want to build your life. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. That's, an mm. that's an important distinction because the flowers are beautiful, not because they're beautiful, but because they have a function and they're beautiful. It's both form and function. Yeah. And to me, that's the great marriage of minimalism. When you can marriage form and function, mm -hmm. you get to what's essential for you, what functions well for you, including that the, the little home tour that we just saw, that dining room, mm -hmm. that was form and function. Without one of the, if you just got rid of the form and it's not going to be beautiful, it's going to make you feel a particular way. But if it's all beauty and you get no function, it gets in the way. Imagine buying 100 Picasso paintings and put them in your dining room. It's all beauty, but it doesn't create beauty for you. Mm. It's just getting in the way. It makes me think how you talked to me out of buying that kettle. Oh, yeah. Talk yeah. about that. There's like a kettle that I used to always talk about how like once my kettle breaks, I'm going to get this beautiful kettle that I always see over a blue bottle. But like I am more of a, well, it's, really about like, is this the best use of the money? Mm -hmm. And for me, because I don't really care about aesthetics. And I realized like, I only care about aesthetics because I know other people care about aesthetics, which is not doing it for me. It's doing it for other people. But but it, it, it is a beautiful kettle. But I'm like, you know, I'm going to like get this as soon as my kettle breaks. My kettle breaks. And I told Josh, I'm like, it finally happened. Like I can get that kettle. And Josh was like, you know, I got that kettle. Mm -hmm. You probably wouldn't just go with the same one that you already had. Yeah, It's cheaper. And uh, it works way better. It doesn't look as nice, but he kind of explained to me how it pours like super, super slow. Uh, the cord kind of goes everywhere. It's a long cord. Um, yeah. And so thank you for uh, saving me the pain of buying this beautiful thing that uh, didn't work as well as the thing that broke. And that's the problem. You know, we all, we, we can covet a really nice looking Italian sports car or whatever, right? But it's not going to get you from A to B, the same way a Toyota will necessarily or a Ford will. And so keeping that in mind is like, what do I really value here? Do mm -hmm. I value the aesthetics more than the form? If, if so, that's okay. It's not, you're not wrong for that. But what am I valuing? 
And why do I value that? Is it for me or is it for someone else? For our More About Less segment, I'm actually going to combine More About Less and the added value segment today. My wife and I have been absolutely obsessed with this trilogy of books. It's called the Enlightenment Trilogy by Jed McKenna. Now, no one knows who Jed McKenna is. It's a a pin name. And I couldn't tell you whether or not these books are fiction or nonfiction. (laughs) Uh, They read like both. They they read sort of like a narrative nonfiction. It's like a memoir or maybe it's a novel. But there's all this mystery in there that makes it even more compelling in a way. And the series is called The Enlightenment Trilogy. The first book is the one that I think most people have found the most value in. It's called Spiritual Enlightenment, The Damnedest Thing. My favorite in the trilogy is the third book. It's called Spiritual Warfare. And uh, he goes through, well, you know what? I'm going to read an excerpt for our More About Less segment. This is about death awareness. And I thought it was a perfect uh, appendix. To remember, we had a conversation with Dr. John Deloney last week. Mm-hmm. And someone said, I'm not suicidal, but I'm in so much pain, I'm thinking a lot about death. Mm-hmm. And what I wanted to bring to the forefront was, yeah, it's okay to talk about death. In mm-hmm. fact, one of our biggest problems in life is we don't talk about death. We don't treat it with the respect that it actually deserves. And so what I've got for you today is an excerpt from the third book, Spiritual warfare. And then we'll talk about it here. The reason we get bogged down in all the weird and exotic spiritual stuff is to avoid the up close and personal stuff. We search the most distant places and times because we don't want to deal with the here and now. We eagerly subscribe to arcane, intelligence-insulting belief systems because they are, by their very design, conducive to the sleep state we wish to maintain. Religion and spirituality exist to serve our need for death denial. They serve as lullabies and drown out the ticking of the clock. We spend our lives and our life force running away from this monster we call death. This state of incessant denial takes all our time and energy. That's where our lives go. That's how we spend them. That's what it means to be asleep within the dream. I'll skip ahead a few more sections here. And he goes on. He's speaking in front of a crowd in this scene. He says, I've said this before. I continue. I love the fact of my death. It has made my life possible. There could have been no awakening without it. It's how I know the value of things. It's how I know what beauty is. It's why I am gratitude-based instead of fear-based. It's also how I know child from adult, asleep from awake. It's how I can look at someone and know if death walks before them or behind. This isn't about death in the abstract. It's about death in the most personal, intimate sense. Your death. Death is the meaning in the dream, the dream state shadow of no self. Death is the boogeyman. You can't kill him or hide from him or get away from him. You can only turn toward him or away from him. If you turn toward him, befriend him, fully embrace him, 
not superficially, but as your own essential truth, then death is the demon you can ride into every battle. And then someone butts in and says, what do you recommend we do? Asked Justin with a touch of sarcasm. Hang out in graveyards? Hell yes, I say. Cemeteries are wonderful places to walk and think. Buy yourself a burial plot and have your lunch there every day. Order your headstone. A glimpse of your own mortality really puts things in perspective. Isn't that what people say? Well, that's what you want to do. See your own mortality. Put things in perspective. There are lots of ways you could raise your awareness. Study photos of people like yourself, now dead. Read books about death and suicide. Carry poison in your pocket and contemplate it often. Walk along high ledges. Lie down on railroad tracks and read poetry. Put a loaded gun in your mouth and cock it. To be clear, he's being hyperbolic. This Mm -hmm. isn't an actual prescription. I just want to be clear about that. I myself enjoy sitting on the ledges of tall buildings at night, looking out over the city and down at the street below, my feet dangling over nothingness. I like walking in the thunderstorms where lightning could strike me down at any instant. I guess all this sounds extreme, but I don't see how anything could be too extreme. The idea is right. Put yourself in close proximity to death. Every hour, every day, You want to be taking time to immerse yourself in the mindset of death awareness, of time awareness, of the fact that the clock is ticking, that every day is one day less, that every breath you take is one breath less. Measure your life in weeks or months instead of years and take somber note of their passing. Take time every morning to understand what it means to have a new day. Etch the words, only that day dawns to which I am awake into your bathroom mirror. The contemplation of death, of one's own mortality, is a real and powerful meditation. Death awareness is the true Zazen. It's the universal spiritual practice, the only one anyone ever needs and the one everyone should perform. So yes, You'd want to do whatever you have to do in order to bring this living awareness into your life. Develop the habit of thinking of death every time you look at a watch or clock, every time you sit down to a meal, every time you go to the bathroom. Take a walk alone every day and think about what it means to be alive, to walk, to see and hear, to breathe. It's not an exercise. It's not something you're trying to make yourself believe like an affirmation. It's something that's real and central to your every thought and act. If you knew you were going to die tomorrow, what would you do today? And why the hell aren't you doing it? And then he has a whole chapter here with a bunch of quotes about death. I'm just gonna read a a handful of them that I thought were really powerful. This one's from the Dalai Lama. Awareness of death is the very bedrock of the entire path. Until you have developed this awareness, all other practices are obstructed. And here's another quote here. This one is from Stanislav Grof, and it goes like this. For any culture which is primarily concerned with meaning, the study of death, the only certainty that life holds for us, must be central. For an understanding of death, is the key to liberation 
and life. A couple more quotes here. I'm skipping past a bunch. There's a bunch of really great quotes in here. This one says, Someday I'll be a weather-beaten skull resting on a grass pillow, <clears throat> serenaded by stray a stray bird or two. Kings and commoners end up the same. No more enduring than last night's dream. That, that one's from uh, uh, Royukon. And here's another one from Schopenhauer. We did a whole episode with Peter Rollins about Schopenhauer. Schopenhauer says, they tell us that suicide is the greatest piece of cowardice, that suicide is wrong, when it is quite obvious that there is nothing in the world to which every man has a more unassailable title than to his own life and person. Here's one from Epictetus. Let death be daily before your eyes, and you will never entertain any abject thought, nor eagerly covet anything. I think one of the reasons we cling so much is we cling because we think we're going to have this forever, mm. as opposed to enjoying it right now. And then finally, oh, two more quotes here. This one's from Virgil, really, really quick. Death twitches my ear. Live, he says, I am coming. Oh, so good. And one final one. This one's from James Baldwin. Perhaps the whole root of our trouble, the human trouble, is that we will sacrifice all the beauty of our lives, will imprison ourselves in totems, taboos, crosses, blood sacrifices, steeples, mosques, races, armies, flags, nations, in order to deny the fact of death, which is the only fact we have. Jed McKenna goes on to say, death is the key to life. Death defines life, gives it shape and meaning and context. Without a clear and honest relationship with our mortality, we live in a stage of endless spiritual sprawl, a soupy gray fog that creates the hellish illusion of life stretching endlessly in all directions. We've homogenized our lives by hiding the parts we're afraid of, and in so doing, we've removed all sense of urgency from life. We have taken death out of life, and that allows us to live unconsciously. Death never left, of course. We've just turned away from it pretended it wasn't there. If we wish to awaken, and that's a mighty big if, then we must welcome death into our lives. Death is our personal Zen master, our source of power, our path to lucidity, but we have to stop running from it in blind panic. We need only stop and turn around, and there it is, inches away staring at us with unblinking gaze, finger poised every second of our lives. That finger is the one true thing in the dream state, and it will, for a fact, all come down. Death awareness is the universal spiritual practice. 
what we have sought in books and magazines and teachers and teachings in ancient cultures and foreign lands has been breathing down our neck this entire time. It's not just another mood-making spiritual technique that you dabble with for a few weeks and blame yourself when it doesn't deliver. Death always delivers. Death is your only true friend, the only friend that will never abandon you and that no one can take away. It slices through every lie, ridicules every belief, mocks every vanity, and reduces ego to absurdity. He's sitting with you right now. If you want to know something, ask him. Death doesn't lie. What you gonna do when death comes for you? <laughs> That's heavy, man. What a series this is. And this is only one small section. There's moments of hilarious comedy in these books. There are other moments of like, how could you say that? Well, I think one of the ways you can say it is like, no one knows who this person actually is. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a character. It could be someone who's just using a pseudonym. It could be a novel but you have this exchange of consciousness with this enlightened being, Jed McKenna, Mm -hmm. who is an enlightened person. He talks about this two-year process of spiritual autolysis that allowed him to become enlightened. And I can tell you that I saw my whole worldview begin to shift after reading this series. It's almost like if Kapil Gupta wrote a really fascinating, entertaining series of novels. Mm -hmm. And uh, I especially saw a change in Beck a radical change in the way she interacts with the world around her now and the serious seriousness through which she sees the world, but also not a clinging to everything is so stuffy and serious, but like, oh, wow, this is, this is the life I have in front of me. Mm. And, and, and death is there, whether I want to pretend it is or, or it's not. Yeah. Yeah. It's not a book I recommend. And there's a, uh, I talk about it because it's added value to my life, but in the I brought the second book with me here. I'll hold it up if you're watching the video version. It's called Spiritually Incorrect Enlightenment. And in the very, very beginning of the book, I'm just going to read a small excerpt from it. It says, Dear Mr. McKenna, I finished reading your book, Spiritual Enlightenment, The Damnedest Thing, and I'm so mad I could chew nails. While you tout your book by its very title as a spiritual book, It is nothing about spirituality and was very disturbing to boot. I actually agree. It's quite disturbing Mm -hmm. when you start realize everything we've been told is, is some iteration of a lie. I wish I'd never read it, but believe me, if you write another book, I will not be buying it. (laughs) Do you realize that if people do, as you suggest, that their lives would be ruined? Maybe you never had anything to lose but most people do. It's a long letter. I won't read the whole thing, but here's the last paragraph. Judging from all the rosy testimonials in the front of your book, there are people out there who believe you're a great spiritual master. I don't think you have a single spiritual bone in your body. (laughs) I've had the wonderful privilege of being in the presence of individuals who were truly enlightened, but you are nothing like them. Put that in the front of your next book so people like me won't waste their time. Mm. Reprinted by permission. But by the way, the, the spirit of that message sounds like it's coming from the exact kind of person who would recognize an enlightened being if they saw one. <laughs> <laughs> mm. 
<laughs> oh, I definitely trust that person's energy to guide me to who's in light. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> yeah. And, and it really flips a lot of these sacred cows on their head. You know, even things like compassion and stillness and things that I hold up as a virtue. Mm. He makes me question him in a way where he's not saying, nope, compassion's bad and this is good or whatever. No, it's like, okay, tell, tell me more about that. Mm. And, and, and understanding who you are, what's the desire behind the compassion? What's the desire behind stillness? What's the desire behind your desires even? Mm, yeah. And I, find, I found it to be a, just a, an unraveling of sorts after reading these books. And I continue to return to them over and over. I'm going back and rereading passages. And it's just, it's like spilling my brain on the table. And I'm having to pick, sort through the things and then put back in the things that make sense and leave the the, detri- the detritus on the table for Alabama to clean up. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, even like with compassion, which is, you know, some uh, a virtue that we hold on to, like, you know, <clears throat> I uh, really feel like I'm compassionate and I do it when I feel like someone else, you know, wants to be treated compassionately. Um, but I don't, sit here and be like, I am compassionate. I'm a compassionate person and like hold that as a virtue. And I think anytime we hold anything as a virtue, mm-hmm. like it's going to, um, it's going to be, it's going to be, uh, not virtue, uh, not virtuous. Yeah. And so what, what he's really talking about here is like a, a self-examination. Yeah. Examining those beliefs that are generally either lies yeah. or they've been handed to us. My beliefs aren't my beliefs. They're certainly not the truth. Or mm-hmm. if they are, what is true? It doesn't matter whether or not I believe it. It is the truth whether or not I have a belief. And yet examine it in a way that more questions than answers yeah. come out of this book. And yeah. I love that. Yeah. yeah. But, but even like the truth, like mm-hmm. valuing the truth. And hanging your hat on that, like, well, looking at other people, like, they're just not willing to see the truth. Mm. I'm willing to see the truth. Mm. I have the truth. Yeah. And it's like, yeah. and, and I literally thought I had the truth, you know, when I was uh, one of Jehovah's Witnesses. So, I mean, any of these concepts, even like death, for example, um, it is one of my favorite uh, quotes about um, just the ephemerality of, of humanity is Einstein, when he was like asked about, does he believe in God or not? And he was like, you know, whether God exists or not, how lucky am I to have this like moment in time? Mm-hmm. And like, that is the essence of which um, I really try to live my life. Like, I don't look at death and fear it. I don't look at death and welcome it. I look at death as like, you are part of this entire process. And I'm grateful that I'm able to have this process. And without you, this process doesn't happen. Yeah, <laughs> it's heavy, man. I just, I just want to sit with it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's something. There's something about this series that it just opened me up in a different way. But I especially saw it with Bex because she's been seeking for a while now and finding something that really connected with her in these books in particular. It was, yeah, I, I saw this the shift in her and a letting go, not of the stuff but a letting go of the identity of, of the needing to be right, the needing to be judgmental or whatever. And I've never considered her to be a uh, especially judgmental person, but on the Enneagram, she's a one. And so she has a sense of justice or whatever. And I've seen that whole thing just sort of, it just evaporated mm. and it was magical. Wow. Anyway. And by the way, one of his practices that he talked in there, I, I literally started doing when I lived in Charleston and that is taking a walk in the cemetery we had an office that 
was just in the most unesthetic environment. Inside the office was nice, but if you wanted to go take a walk, there were like railroad tracks behind you and it just didn't look good around that space. But if you walked maybe like about four or five blocks, you'd stumble upon a very beautiful cemetery. And I was like, oh, okay, this is a place I can walk. And it did feel weird at first because I've been conditioned to think of cemeteries as creepy places. And I've been conditioned to think that I've got to subscribe to a story about how I'm being a creepy guy by taking a walk in the cemetery. But I enjoyed the experience so much. It was so peaceful, so contemplative that that became my walking place. And that's a part of my life now. Walking in a cemetery and just being present, it stimulates questions and curiosities and sensations that are, are, are unlike what other spaces like being at a party or being at a beach or even being inside a church, uh, you know, produce. I've never talked about this, but huge chunks of our first three books, well, my, my first novel and then minimalism and everything that remains um, were written in a cemetery in Dayton, Ohio, mm. uh, Woodlawn Cemetery, where the Wright brothers are buried. Uh, Paul Lawrence Dunbar is buried there and a bunch of other well-known Daytonians, inventors of things. But uh, it's a stunning cemetery with the best view of the city as well. It's the highest point in Dayton. And so you get the stunning view of downtown Dayton. But as you walk through there, it's so peaceful and it gives you that space to contemplate because of the stillness that's there. But then also because this is where I'm going to end up. I mean, it may not be at Woodlawn, but this is where I'm going to end up. There's no difference between the king and the peasant, as the quote said. It's all going to end up being the same thing. Our fate, which is inevitable, is the same. No matter how successful you are right now, no matter how compassionate you are right now, no matter how detail-oriented you are right now, no matter how good of a minimalist you are right now, you're going to end up in the same place as everyone else. You're going to end up in the grave. And there, at first, that's terrifying, but there's also a freedom to that. Because now I realize, oh, this is it. It's gratitude-based. It's not fear-based. not a, a fear of death. It's, wow, it's a gratitude for life. Yeah. And even like those negative emotions that pop up, like even finding a way to like have gratitude for that stuff. I'm not saying to live in misery, yeah. but... um but yeah, I mean, I have a deep appreciation for sadness. Like anytime I feel sad, like I don't like feeling sad, but how freaking cool is it to feel sad? Yeah. And, and it's only a problem when we cling to the sadness. Right. Because I'm I'm that kind of person. I'm a sad boy, right? Or whatever it is. It's like, <laughs> okay, now I'm clinging to that, right? I'm, I've got the, the Kid Leroy album on repeat and uh, I'm going to make myself feel sad. Well, that's a type of clinging. But when we feel sad, the worst thing we can do is what? Suppress it, mm -hmm. deny it, not appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of it comes from that label of good and bad with feelings, right? So when we say it feels bad or I feel bad, well, that's not a moral judgment. You, like that doesn't mean you you are a horrible person. So what are we saying there? Well, I feel uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. I, I, I feel sensations that I don't know what to do with. Yeah. I feel sensations that I don't know how to make sense out of. Uh, I feel challenged by my sensations. Okay, well, there are lots of wonderful, delightful things that feel like that in the beginning, mm -hmm. the first time around, right? Um, I mean, most people who uh, smoke cigars or drink alcohol and really delight and enjoy in those things will tell you that, hey, the first time, I coughed really badly. The first time I spat it out, but I acquired a taste for it and I learned to appreciate 
the sophistication inherent in it. And a lot of the so-called negative emotions have that same kind of wisdom and creative energy to offer us if we can let go of the judgments we make about ourselves for having them and say, yeah, I feel uncomfortable, but I don't need to formulate a theory about what that means about who I am just because I feel uncomfortable. I can sit here and be present and see where this energy takes me. The series is called The Enlightenment Trilogy. We'll put a link to all three books in the show notes if you're interested. It's not something I recommend. And it may uproot your entire life and your belief systems and everything else. But um, man, I found immense value in it myself. And that's why it's our added value segment. All right, that's our maximal episode for today. On behalf of Ryan Nicodemus, TK Coleman, Alabama podcast, Sean, one last time. Like I said, follow him on Instagram. Let him know we said we love him and you love him as well. Podcast Sean, at Podcast Sean on Instagram. Uh, Jordan No More, Professor Sean, Danny Unknown, post-production Peter and the rest of our team. I'm Joshua Fields Milburn. If you leave here today with just one message, let it be this. Love people and use things because the opposite never works. Thanks for listening, y'all. We'll see you next time. Peace. Every little thing you think that you need Every little thing you think that you need Every little thing that's just feeding your greed Oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it